Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale. And uh, today is uh, another special treat, another um, solo show, the fulfillment of a promise that I made months and months ago, probably even a year ago, to one of my listeners, a white girl on Instagram with a black background, something like that. Sorry, I didn't get the name right, but you know who you are. So I, I promised you that I would continue on and get out at least one show on the continuing my Jesus Mythicism Refuted series. And so here it is. This is going to be part two. The first part, if you remember, I posted up back when I was the Christian co-host on SNS in the summer of 2019. That was a smash hit. I had mythicists actually emailing me in saying they were convinced by my arguments and, and saying it was highly persuasive and that sort of thing. And I did a great job researching. You know, I made sure to include both mythicist and uh, pro-historicist -histor sources of the scholarly level in my blog so that people would be able to, to um, research on their own and go beyond what I just say in the podcast and that sort of thing. So uh, a lot of you guys clicked on that, so I thought that was great. Um, a very positive response to the Jesus Mythicism Refuted series. So so yeah, I'm excited to continue on here. In part one, we I covered the four categories of non-Christian evidences, starting with uh, ancient four ancient historians. So that was, we looked at Thallus and Phlegon talking about the darkness and earthquake at the time of Jesus on the cross and we found out that that the evidence can't prove that the historical Jesus exists on a balance of probabilities there. Uh, secondly we looked at the writings of Cornelius Tacitus the famous Roman historian and that was a success. Um, I ended up concluding ba on the basis of his evidence um, I got 59.05% um, degree of warrant that we can prove that Jesus historically existed based on the writings of Tacitus. Uh, thirdly, we looked at the ancient Roman historian uh, Suetonius, and he was a failure. Uh, we, I don't think I was able to prove on a balance of probabilities that Suetonius's hi, uh, historical works prove there was a historical Jesus. And then finally, we ended off with an in-depth uh, analysis from the two passages uh, about Jesus and his brother James in Flavius Josephus's uh, Jewish historic, historical work, and uh, that came out very strong, 70.65% as my subjective probability. Um, so all combined, um, we proved that there was a minimal historical Jesus existing in the 77.63% proven degree, just based on evaluating those four texts from ancient non-Christian historians in isolation. So it's not looking at other claims, negative evidences, and that sort of thing. And that's what we're going to be doing here in part two, is expanding on that and adding some more positive evidences from non-Christian sources, looking at some of the other non-Christian sources and evaluating and assessing and, and seeing if that can increase our claim. Can we go above the 77.63 or, or are, are they all failures and all we have is Tacitus and Josephus as the successful non-Christian sources? Well, well, we'll find out here in part two. Okay, so let's get straight into it. So just by way of reminder, um, in order to remember what it is we're trying to prove with relation to the historical Jesus, I'm just trying to prove a minimal, what I call a quote-unquote, minimal historical Jesus hypothesis. Uh, so this, this isn't the full concept of the Christian Jesus, you know, I can prove that Jesus turned water into wine and, and everything the, the Gospels say about him and or if you're a Catholic or something you believe that there's even additional uh, extra biblical 
inspired teachings about Jesus. I can't prove the transubstantiation is true or something like that. I'm not trying to prove every single thing that the New Testament says about Jesus here. Um, if you could, that's great. I, I, I would definitely, I definitely believe that. But I'm taking my Christian hat off and I'm putting on a secular historian's hat. And I'm just trying to prove that, well, minimally, we can prove there was a his, historical Jesus. And I define that as, look, minimally, he's one who can, we can prove on a balance of probabilities that lived as a historical Jewish man in the first century Palestine, or Judea at that time, who served as the foundational basis for at least some of the later and subsequent Orthodox Christian beliefs and practices as specifically outlined in the New Testament literature. And like I said, if, if you believe, if you're a Catholic or Eastern Orthodox and you have other traditions, possibly th this would, could possibly be consistent with those additional traditions as well. Um, that I'll, I, I don't believe that as a Protestant. I just believe that the New Testament's inspired. But that's a debate for another time. That's not relevant to this debate. Um, here I'm just trying to prove that there is this minimal historical Jesus. That's the aim. Okay, so let's get straight into that. Uh, with part two, the first thing I want to do, continuing on looking at non-Christian, uh, Roman, or pagan, uh, Greek, and Jewish sources, and in this part, I want to start with a new category. So we looked at the category of four ancient historians last time. Thus, to start off uh, part two, I want to look at the category of four sources from ancient Roman government officials acting in their official capacity, mentioning Jesus or uh, alluding to, you know, giving quotes that are relevant to Christianity and potentially relevant to our thesis about the truth of the minimal, minimal historical Jesus. So the first one I want to start off with on this front is none other than Pliny the Younger, or Pliny Secundus in the Latin, which means Pliny the Second. You know, we call him Pliny the Younger. Uh, he was a pagan Roman governor of Bithynia. And along with this, there were a couple of supporting documents that represent two in our second and third Roman government official documents from the emperors themselves, from the ancient Roman emperor Trajan, the ancient Roman Emperor Hadrian. So you get uh, three Roman government official texts for the price of one here. And why am I not separating them out? Well, it's, it's because the, the letters from the Roman Emperor Trajan and the Roman Emperor Hadrian, they don't really help us here. Even if you grant everything the Christian could want about them, um, they don't prove a historical Jesus in their own right. So I sort of see them as more supporting evidence, backing up this Pliny letter. And that's the best candidate or the primary uh, text that I want to evaluate to see if we can prove if there's a minimal historical Jesus or not. So the, the letters from Trajan and Hadrian are just going to serve as supporting backup for this, for the main line of evidence here, which is the letter from Pliny the Younger. Okay, so let's start off with who is this Pliny Secundus? Who is Pliny the Younger? Why should I give a... Uh, darn tootin' about what this guy has to say uh, 2,000 years ago. Okay, so just to give you uh, a sense of who he is, so Pliny Secundus, or Pliny the Younger, uh, he was a lawyer, he was an author, he was an official magistrate, he was an ancient Roman senator for 25 years in ancient Rome, um, and eventually he became the Roman governor of Bithynia and Pontus, which is 
uh, at least partially or mostly within Asia, the province of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. Asia Minor is roughly the area that we call Turkey in the modern day today. Essentially, he was the nephew uh, and adopted son of the famous natural historian Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder was, again, he was a natural historian. He liked to document natural things. He, that's why he had to rush out when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, just wiping out Herculaneum and Pompeii and all those places. That's where Pliny the Elder rushed out there to see what was going on, and he died because of that, because of that, because of his curious, scientific curiosity to see what was going on there. Anyways, getting back to Pliny the Younger, so Pliny tells us that he was 17 at the time of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. So that means he was born in and around 62 AD. As I said, he began his career as a lawyer at the age of 18, you know, after holding a series of minor administrative offices. He was then appointed as an administrator or praetor of military affairs by the Emperor Domitian in 93 AD. And just to give uh, an idea of some of these quote unquote minor administrative duties. So he was essentially the ancient equivalent of the chief of police in Rome the capital of the entire empire, with a population of over a million people at the time. Um, after that, he served as the ancient equivalent of the attorney general for the entire empire. Uh, and then finally as consul, uh, or the, well, you know, a, a sort of akin to what we would say the secretary of state and interior today. And that was all before he um, became the governor of Bithynia, um, in that portion of what is now Turkey or in the Roman province of Asia Minor. So he's had an impressive career, as you guys can tell. Uh, he became the Roman governor in 111 AD, uh, as when most historians will say he was appointed by the Emperor Trajan as the official representative in Bithynia and Pontus. Uh, and then he died in 113 AD. So obviously that provides an upper bound as to when he could have written this letter. Now, Pliny is, is very well known for his elegant writing. He's a very, his letters are world-renowned. He wrote a series of letters, and they were so beautifully written uh, that the biblical scholar F.F. Bruce mentions, quote-unquote, Pliny is one of the world's greatest letter writers, whose letters, unlike the ephemeral notes that most of us write, were not just written for the intended recipient, but had an eye to the wider public as well. And as such, they have attained the status of quote-unquote literary classics. Um, so this guy's these guys this guy's letters are something uh, you want to read. Um, they're they're important. They're literary classics, so to speak. And essentially, all of his letters have been collected into a series of ten books. The first nine books contain about 247 letters of personal correspondence, stuff like that. But then book ten contains 121 official, more official type or substantive letters. And it's book 10 that we get our, our reference relevant to the minimal historical Jesus. You know, this is a series of official letters between him and the Emperor Trajan uh, during his ministry, uh, during his governorship in Bithynia. And believe it or not, these 10 books are preserved in extant manuscripts today. Obviously, we don't have the original autographs, but we're not relying on some Christian saying, hey, Pliny said this, like we were with Phallus and Phlegon, for example. Nope, this is more like Tacitus or Joseph. We've, we've actually got extant manuscripts from Pliny's own words himself today. 
Uh, so we're not dependent on others to learn what Pliny said. We can read him in his own words, which is great. And obviously the 10th book, as I said, is what contains a very special letter. So specifically it's letters 96 that is Pliny's letter that we're looking at mentioning Christian that's relevant to Christians here. And then 97 is the supporting document, the response letter from the Emperor Trajan to Pliny's request, and we'll get into that in a moment. But So it's letters 96 and 97 of Book 10 that we are looking at here that's relevant to our thesis about the minimal historical Jesus. Okay, so great. Um, now that we know who Pliny is and the caliber of the person that we're talking about here, what is it that he says in this letter? In, these le uh, in this letter that's so important, 96th letter of Book 10, what is it he says? So let's get straight into explaining what Pliny says as he's writing his letter to the Emperor Trajan as the governor of Bithynia. It is my practice, my lord or sir, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never participated in trials of Christians, I therefore do not know what offenses it is, uh, the practice to punish or to investigate, or to what extent, and I have been not a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference between the very young and the more mature, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance, or if a man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased to be one. Whether the name itself, even without offenses, or only the offenses associated with the name, are to be published. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were, in fact, Christians or not. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished. There were, other, there were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome, to be tried by you. Soon accusations spread, as usually happens, because of the proceedings going on, and several incidents occurred. An anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians uh, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the gods, and moreover they cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. These, I thought, should be discharged. Others, named by the informer, declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, uh, they had been, but had since ceased to be such. Some three years before, others many years before, some as much as 25 years prior, they were Christians and then ceased to be so. They all worshipped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. Christ, these I discharged. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a god and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, 
theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but food of the ordinary and innocent kind. Even this, they affirmed, they had ceased to do after my edict, by which, in accordance with your instructions, I had forbidden any political association. Accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. Interesting. Okay, back to quoting. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. I therefore postponed the investigation and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are, are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms as well. But it seems possible to check and cure it. It is certainly quite clear that the temples, which had almost been deserted, have begun to be frequented again that the established religious rites, long since neglected, are now finally being resumed, and that from everywhere sacrificial animals are coming, for which until now very few purchases, purchasers could be found. Hence it is easy to imagine what a multitude of people can be reformed if an opportunity for repentance is afforded itself. Bada boom, bada bing. So that is Pliny's letter. Um, so th this is an incredible document that gives us uh, much value and insight into the ancient early Christian church of the early 2nd century. From it, we learn several things. We learn that Jesus was worshipped, or that Christ was worshipped, and that believers died for their belief in him in the early 2nd century. Incredible. Gospels confirmed. We also learn several aspects of worship that correspond with the New Testament. Worshipping on a fixed day. Sounds like Sunday to me practice of the Eucharist, getting together, having food of an ordinary kind, Gospels confirmed, and and uh, New Testament confirmed in Acts of the Apostles and, and that, the letters. And we also receive the basis of the ethical grounding for Jesus' teachings, the teachings of Christ, and many moral practices, you know, keeping your word, not be, doing immoral things, and that sort of thing. So, this is an incredible verse. Let, let me just take a quick look at um, some of the things that Gary Habermas lists in his book, The Historical Jesus, that we learned from this text alone. Okay, so Gary, on uh, page 199 of his book, says, quote-unquote, From Pliny's letter, we find several more facts about Jesus in early Christianity. Number one, Christ was worshipped as a god, as a deity, by the early believers. This is relevant for early Christology. Second, Pliny refers late in his letter to the teachings of Jesus and his followers as excessive superstition and contagious superstition, which is reminiscent of the words that both Cornelius Tacitus and Suetonius used when we evaluated them in our Jesus Mythicism Refuted Part 1 series, if you remember that. Interesting. Three, number three, Jesus' ethical teachings are reflected in the oath taken by Christians never to be guilty of a number of sins mentioned in the letter. Four, we find a probable reference to Christ's institution of communion and the Christian celebration of the love feast that happened afterwards when they reassembled 
in Pliny's remark about their regathering to partake of ordinary food. The reference here alludes to the accusation on the part of the non-Christians that believers were suspected of ritual murder and, f and drinking of blood during these meetings, again confirming our view that communion is the subject to which Pliny is referring here. Number five, there is also a possible reference to Sunday worship in Pliny's statement that Christians meet on a certain day. And number six, so concerning early Christianity, six, we see Pliny's method of dealing with believers from their identification to their interrogation to their execution. For those who denied being Christians, worship of the gods and the emperor gained them their freedom. Seven, interestingly, Pliny reports that true believers could not be forced to worship the gods or the emperor real Christians. Um, so you, this is absolute proof. Even the pagans, contra, in contradistinction to radical skeptics today, like David Johnson, who just deny, oh, there was no way to for people to tell a Christian, a real Christian from a fake Christian. Not really. Even the pagan Pliny the Younger uh, wasn't that ignorant. He at least knew how to differentiate true Christians from fakes. Number eight, Christian worship involved a pre-dawn service. So that's something interesting. 9. Which included singing hymns. 10. These Christians ap apparently formed a typical cross-section of society in Bithynia, since they were of all classes, all ages, all both sexes. They were in the villages and towns and cities. So this was truly a diverse group. And that they were, uh, there were recognized positions in the church, such as two deacons, and they weren't just any deacons, they were female deacons. Females had positions of authority in the early church as deacons. That might be a little bit hard for complementarians to, to deal with there. So yeah, that those are the facts that Dr. Gary Habermas uh, tells us we can, can be gleaned from this fascinating letter alone. Now, I want to mention the other two sources here, because if you remember, we have two supporting documents. These are much shorter, thank goodness, from the Emperor Trajan, who is responding to the uh, this letter from Pliny directly. And then later on, the Emperor Hadrian writes another letter that sort of, again, supports some of the things that Trajan says. So let's first look at what Trajan has to say. Okay, so Trajan, responding to Pliny the Younger's letter around the same time, gets back to him and says, quote-unquote, You observed the proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, they are to be punished. With this reservation, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshipping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any official prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. Uh, end quote. So that's what the Emperor Trajan responds to uh, Pliny with here. Uh, and we can glean some, some facts here about the ancient early Christian church that are relevant. So again, uh, Dr. Gary Habermas in his book, excellent book, The Historical Jesus, says, look, we can glean um, number one, Christians should not be sought out or tracked down for punishment. Two, repentance coupled with worship of the, the evil ancient pagan gods sufficed to clear a person. 
Pliny expressed doubts as to whether a person should be punished in spite of repentance, and only recounts the pardoning of persons who had willingly given up their beliefs prior to questioning. And then finally, number three, Gary mentions, well, Pliny was not to honor any lists of Christians which were given to, to him if the accuser was anonymous. Um, so th those are a couple things that we can understand about these sits in Lieben of the early 2nd century and the persecution of Christians and that sort of thing. And what's more, uh, this, this kind of response by Trajan shows that, well, it, there wasn't a widespread, massive, systematic hunt of persecute, for persecuting Christians. It was more sporadic. So we had the Neronian persecution after this great fire in 64 AD where we were scapegoated by that uh, evil satanic tyrant of, a, of an emperor. Uh, we also had the persecutions of, again, another evil satanic tyrant, Domitian, during the 90s. He was the guy where the book of Revelation was, the emperor where the book of Revelation was written, and you can tell in the anti-Roman stance of that book uh, that he's having to deal with that evil guy, Domitian, the emperor. But um, apart from that, uh, the persecutions were were, weren't on an empire-wide level at this time, not even in the time of Trajan, as we're seeing here in the early 2nd century. They, they kind of are kind of working things out um, as to how to, the proper manner to go about them. Um, obviously, there is persecution here. I mean, true Christians are being killed, though. Um, if you stick to your guns, there's no leniency. Um, if you say no, Jesus is the Christ, he is God in the flesh, and I, I stand by that, I, I would get my head chopped off or I would be crucified or killed. Um, so this, there is this real persecution that's going on, endorsed by the emperor of Rome. Um, but it, it's, not, oh, it's not a witch hunt. It's not, you know, go out and try to find these guys. It's more a react, reactionary stance that the Roman Empire has at this point point in time where it's well if they become exposed to you you've got to punish them you've got to do what you've got to do that's kind of the attitude here and this this uh sits in Lieben or this kind of prevailing attitude is reflected later on in the letter by the emperor Hadrian when he kind of responds to he got a letter from a, the proconsul of Asia um so Hadrian was the the emperor after Trajan from 117 to 138 AD and Hadrian replies to his successor about the treatment of Christian believers. So he's responding to uh, the proconsul of Asia, Manusius Fundinus. And basically he says, quote unquote, I do not wish, therefore, that the matter should be passed by without examination, so that these men may neither be harassed nor opportunity of malicious proceedings be offered to informers. If, therefore, the provincials can clearly evince their charges, evidence their charges against the Christians so as to answer before the tribunal, let them pursue this course only, but not by mere petitions and mere outcries against the Christians. For it is far more proper, if anyone would bring an accusation, that you should examine it. Um, so that's what we get from Hadrian. And again, this kind of backs up what we learned with Trajan, that Christians were frequently reported as lawbreakers in the Roman Empire in, in the Asia province of Asia Minor specifically, and they were punished in various ways. Secondly, like Trajan, Hadrian also encouraged a certain amount of temperance and ordered that Christians should not be purposefully harassed. 
you know, going out of their way to harass them. Thirdly, if Christians were indeed guilty, as indicated by careful examination, then punishments, including execution, could well be in order. And finally, fourthly, um, no undocumented charges or uh, anonymous charges were to be brought against believers or Christian believers, and those engaged in such should be punished. Um, Now with Hadrian, uh, that letter from Hadrian is recorded in the uh, church historian Eusebius, that's where we get this from, so that's much later, 300s AD, 4th century AD. Uh, so you might call whether there's doubt, did Hadrian, did he record this properly? I trust Eusebius enough to say that, yeah, Hadrian did write a letter like this, and most historians take it to, it's totally innocuous, it doesn't prove a minimal historical Jesus, it just kind of supports Trajan's response in this milieu, in, in the cultural milieu at that time, of how pagan government officials viewed Christians, the superstitious Christians, as they called them. So yeah, uh, that's it for Hadrian. Let, for the most part, let's focus on Trajan. You know, Trajan, we don't get a minimal historical Jesus either, but there's some interesting tidbits here. Let's really focus on evaluating Pliny's letter now, now that we have the full context of how these three government officials, um, starting with Pliny the Younger, saw Christians and and how to treat them. Okay, so by way, uh, in terms of evaluating Pliny's letter, uh, the first thing we need to ask is, okay, when did he write this? What is the date of this letter that is relevant to the, you know, the Christ being worshipped as a god by these early Christians? Okay, so the dating is a relatively uncontroversial aspect, aspect among most historians and scholars, even among mythicists like Richard Carrier. Uh, he himself dates it. So it's dates around 111 AD to 113 AD. Obviously, the upper bound 113 is when Pliny died, um, according to most historians, and he became the governor of Bithynia uh, in about 111 AD. So he had to have written it during his time, during his governorship over that province at the time. So most scholars typically date it um, that I've seen somewhere around 111 to 112 AD. So even Jesus mythicist, Dr. Richard Carrier, the ancient historian, he dates it to 112 AD, for example. So like I said, this is pretty much uncontroversial. The The only outlier I saw as to the date uh, came from a Christian, J.P. Holding, of, of Tecton TV level fame. Uh, and he dated he dates the letter to 106 AD. So, you know, about six... Uh, six years prior or earlier than most historians and scholars place it. You know, Mike Mike Lacona, for example, he dated at 111 AD, so that on the earlier end and that sort of thing. But yeah, um, so we're going to say between 111 to 113 AD is, is when this letter was written, uh, it most probably written. Great, so now we know the when, we know, we know the who, we know the what, we know the when. Now we got to get into evaluating the what's the reliability of this thing? Can we trust anything that it says? Does it actually prove that there was a minimal historical Jesus as you're trying to prove, Dale? Well, the first question we need to understand is, well, what's the textual reliability of this thing? Was it preserved properly? You said that we have direct manuscripts. Great. We we can avoid entirely bypass any questions about, well, is it a Christian misinterpreting him or something like that? But what can we say about the preservation of the text? We do have certain extent manuscripts. Um, Obviously, it is scanty because it's from the ancient world. We don't have the original autographs themselves. 
but virtually no historian of or of you know Greco-Roman history or the classics or biblical scholarship would ever deny that yes this was preserved these are in fact the words that Pliny the Younger wrote in 112 AD or thereabouts obviously some skeptics have objected in times past in terms of the authenticity of the collection of the letters of, as a whole so some some have said in the past these are radically hyper skeptics but some have said well these the letters are entirely fictitious Pliny didn't have anything to do with any of them um, or some are more nuanced than they say well maybe he did have something to do with writing stuff something like them simpler originals but then the letters were later collected and updated and the published version we have today is is based on Pliny's original simpler letters and stuff like that but there's been a lot of updating to the collection and that goes hand in hand with well some skeptics say look there's no agreement among scholars regarding when and who brought these various letters together compiled them into a book uh, and then published them um, that's just we don't know the details of that according to them you know so, some scholars have pointed to about three to four separate publications so it was published, then modified, published, then modified, published, then modified four times. According, that's S. White, for example, um, who, who argues that. And that's going to be in a, one of the sources I provide you there. However, it has to be said, again, the majority of historians, even Jesus mythicists, scholars are unfazed by these considerations. This is a hyper-skeptic thing. Nobody denies that Pliny wrote these virtually in their entirety um, as they are written for the most part maybe minor tweaks or something like that but nothing um, substantive substantively was not written by Pliny authentically so we have the actual text written and preserved from Pliny the Younger in 111 to 112 AD and some of the reasons for this is look well these uh, letters are highly polished literary works that are very elegant and that's highly unlikely that some later Christian scribe would just forge be able to forge such beauty that reflective of an upper crust Roman official or magistrate like Pliny the Younger it had to be written by Pliny even if there was a, com a later compilation of the various letters into one work and that wasn't done by Pliny because he died in 113 that doesn't matter it's the letters themselves are substantively written by Pliny the Younger and no one denies that there's also lots of personal irrelevant trivial details that no forger in the right man mind would have any motivation to make up you know letters of recommendation for a promotion of Pliny's personal friends why would a later Christian scribe give a a darn tootin' about recommending, pretending to recommend uh, Pliny's friends for recommendation. Um, you know, especially if, if you're talking about some Christian scribe decades later. Why? Why would he go through the go through that? And that there's no point of that. No, Pliny wrote that. Uh, lots of personal details that are irrelevant and that sort of thing. Um, numerous brief notes that carry si uh, signs of what historians call signs of authenticity. Um, no one would sit down and, and do that sort of thing even with the letters of substance so book 10 that's what we're specifically interested in you know he he gives long descriptions of character long descriptions of political or social events that are relevant at the time of Pliny the Younger but not later on 
or natural phenomenon going off his daddy Pliny the elder the natural historian most historians say look there's no reason why anyone other than Pliny would have done this and in fact Pliny has every reason to give written long descriptions of his famous trials for example um, all to his educated friends he's showing off you know otherwise they would just depend on the public news for the details so Pliny is kind of getting one up over on them and giving his personal spin on it that only makes sense if it's Pliny writing it because he's, he's giving these details that would only be relevant to boost Pliny's status. Now one, one last thing here, so, some, uh, some of these hyper-skeptics have noted some parallels, you know, parallelomania um, from typical internet skeptics and that sort of thing. And they'll try to say, well, look, there are strong literary influences, both in the language and the content of the letters. There's reminiscences of Virgil or subsequent writers from the early imperial period in his letters. But every historian in the world just laughs at you if you think that this proves it's it's a fake, it's a forgery, and Pliny didn't write it. No, the, the, they, everyone, the best historians, writers, and that in history were all influenced and copied people's standard people literary standards during especially during this period of the imperial early imperial period that was very uh popular especially in the second century but yeah no, nobody would take any of these to say well the whole thing just must be a fiction he must not have written it because he's using language from his predecessors no this doesn't rule out plenty uh in, in fact Given the Sitzen Lieben of the early 2nd century, it proves that Pliny must have wrote, written this. So, so yeah, these are the, some of the reasons why everybody just laughs at you if you say Pliny didn't write these letters. But what about with our specific passage? Well, here it gets even less controversial. Once again, we have the principle of enemy attestation. Every person with a PhD, a credible scholar, even Jesus mythicists like Dr. Richard Carrier, don't dare deny that Pliny the Elder wrote Letter 96, the letter that we read that talks about Jesus and the Christian. Nobody denies that. It, you know, only a few critics in previous centuries past would have claimed otherwise. Nobody today, no one with a PhD, there is zero doubt about the genuineness of this particular reference that we're looking at. Dr. Van Verst, he even notes that, look, the quote-unquote, the style matches that of the other letters in the same book, and the letters were known already by the time of Tertullian. We have external evidence. The ancient early Christian church father, Tertullian, who we proved in part one was in the know, a Roman in the offices of the emperor, a trustworthy, reliable, uh, the guy who invented modern historical criteria of authenticity himself and textual criticism. He invented that stuff. And Tertullian confirms that these letters by Trajan and Pliny were there in and around 200, the 200s AD time frame 220 AD or between 196 and 212 AD in and around that time and we've got Tertullian confirming the genuineness of this reference yeah sorry don't believe you skeptic you're hyper skeptic uh that's getting bombastic rhetoric sorry I, I don't believe you if if you are a myth if you are a mythicist and you're so radical as to say that this is an interpolation or something no one with a phd agrees with you not even not even your own kind bob price or richard carrier would never agree with you they say yep plenty the El plenty the younger wrote this uh you can't escape this so so this is absolutely certain and thus uh the job for us to do now in terms of uh, reliability evaluation is to say okay plenty wrote this so what does that prove that the minimal historical jesus exists or not 
And in order to do that, uh, we need to look at, okay, well, what Pliny was a reliable Roman, uh, Roman government official. Uh, he has decades of service in the field. He had all the opportunity he could have needed. He was personal friends with the Roman historian Suetonius and Cornelius Tacitus, that scrupulous, rely, scrupulously honest and reliable historian Cornelius Tacitus that we talked about in part one, who had personal access to the Roman official archives, letters of Pontius Pilate could have absolute proof, and we proved that he would have taken the time to actually research that as well, uh, as to the Emperor Trajan himself. They were buddies. So Pliny the Younger had every opportunity to learn the historical facts about Jesus. He would have known whether Jesus existed historically or was just a myth, as the mythicists like to say. Uh, or at, least, at the very least, he had the opportunity to find out if he wanted to. Beyond that, he also interrogated directly Christians, including elders, two deaconesses, you know, the uh, people with authority in the early church, and they happened to be female. So he directly got his information firsthand from the Christians that he was interrogating, uh, as well as former Christians, apparently. And he got the details uh, mostly correct. So we know he must have been talking to true Christians, um, people that knew what they were talking about. So Pliny is reliable. He has no bias. Uh, he's just performing his official duties as a government representative, as the governor of Bithynia. And look, there's no bias evident here he's he's reaching out trying to ask trajan here's what i'm doing is this okay am i going to get in trouble if i'm uh, wiping these people out or uh show, should i not be showing leniency or what's the score here so yeah there, there's no reason why Pliny himself would lie or have a motive not to be reliable in saying what he did about jesus and the early christians that said what are his sources the reliability of Pliny is ultimately going to go back down to his sources and as we've kind of hinted at nobody nobody denies that he, even myth radical mythicists like G.A. Wells never deny yes he had access to Christians so that was one of his sources was eyewitness testimony from the Christians of his era including certain leaders and authorities such as deaconesses but the second ab the second avenue is the one I want to evaluate first and that's did he take advantage of the opportunity he had to look into official Roman records and find out the truth through official correspondences and records as to whether Jesus Christ existed and that sort of thing, whether there really was this historical person in Christ that the Christians were worshipping as a god? Okay, so let's look at that first. Okay, so I, I don't, personally, I don't think that Pliny did take advantage of his opportunity to consult his scholarly friends like Tacitus, who did do the research, probably did the research, or nor Suetonius about the Jesus Christ historical figure. And I'm, in the first place, the majority of scholars and historians agree with me on this front, and they say no, uh, obviously Pliny didn't take advantage of, of his access to official records or his access to getting, hearing what Tacitus or, or asking them what they thought from their research about Jesus. So even Christian historians like Dr. Robert Wilkin, for example, concludes, quote-unquote, Pliny's knowledge of the new move, Christian movement must have been slight and largely second-hand. Uh, even an article by a mythicist on the infidels.org, Jeff Lauder, he quotes Robert Wilkin saying this, R.T. France, another biblical scholar, a great one for the Christians, writes, quote-unquote, for our purposes, 
looking for evidence about Jesus in Pliny's letter has nothing spe specific to offer. Pliny seems to have discovered nothing about him as a historical figure. And finally, the famous Christian apologist, one of my friends and someone I look up to, and a lot of Christians look up to him on the evangelical side, Dr. Mike Lacona himself. Even he concludes in his excellent book on the resurrection, um, the resurrection of Jesus, he concludes in his section on Pliny saying, quote unquote, while of interest in studies of early Christianity and the development of Christology, Pliny provides no information pertaining to the historical Jesus. I, meaning Mike Lacona, assign it a reading of not useful, i.e. or not relevant. Wow. Um, so that's, that's some powerful attestation that's supporting the mythicist cause of saying, throw Pliny out, he's garbage. He can't, he can't help you, at least in turn, with respect to trying to prove the minimal historical Jesus. Pliny is relevant for, as Mike Lacona said, for other purposes. The study of early Christianity, or what the persecution was, or how did the study of Christology develop? Well, they were worshipping Jesus Christ as a god in the early 2nd century, so that's relevant there. But it's not relevant at all for proving that there was a minimal historical Jesus, even in the eyes of most Christian historians and biblical scholars, um, no matter how conservative or how liberal. So that's that's an issue. And one of the main reasons for this wide consensus opinion, and including my opinion, um, is due to the fact that Pliny doesn't really give us any real information about Jesus as a historical figure. He calls him Christ. Um, he speaks mostly about the beliefs and practices associated with this Christ. Doesn't say the name Jesus, but calls him the Christ, so the Messiah. So, so this is one reason. Look, there are no details about Jesus' life, his death, crucifixion in this passage. The only time it mentions is it says, well, Christians were worshipping him as a god and following certain moral practices based on the teachings of Christ. Again, debatable whether that proves that there is a historical human being giving them this teachings as opposed to some mythical vision or God saying, don't lie, don't do this, or something like that. It just doesn't tell us. But secondly, I, I think, and most damningly, is that Pliny explicitly admits in his letter to being deeply ignorant about Christians and what sort of treatment they deserve for what. So, you know, that's in the very first paragraph that I read. He, he's like, I've never tried Christians before. I don't know what to do with them. I wasn't sure what their crime... He, he kind of hints that he wasn't sure what their crimes were, so he had to ask them, you know, what is it you're doing? Why am I punishing you peeps? And he's kind of surprised. Oh, they're, they're not drinking blood. Um, who said that? Um, they're just eating normal food, it, it appears. They're... they're pretty good. So this kind of betrays the fact, yeah, I, I think it's very improbable that Pliny would have done independent research, either by looking at the official records during his time in Rome uh, directly, or through asking his friends Cornelius Tacitus or Suetonius what they knew from their research into the historical Jesus. He he just seems to be, look, his, his main way is through interrogating Christians uh, of his time. And that's how he's finding out information as to what they believe, who their founder is, and who this Christ guy is that they're worshiping. Now, that said, um, obviously I'm appealing to a consensus here. The majority of even Christian scholars uh, don't think that Pliny got his information from first-hand investigative research of the official records or by consulting people in the know like Tacitus or Suetonius, uh, people that 
had researched about the historical Jesus, or probably did, as I proved with Tacitus's case in Part 1a of this Jesus Mythicism Refuted series. However, there is one Christian who's in, thoroughly investigated this, who disagrees with me and the majority, and Mike Lacona and, and all the rest of them. We're out to lunch, according to, to J.P. Holding, of again, of Tecton TV fame. And I think that he deserved, he's done a lot of research. So we have to seriously consider it. And he says, no, there is a reason and to think a priori that Pliny the Younger would have thoroughly investigated. So in the first place, with respect to um, the fact that Pliny talks about being ignorant or that, you know, for, for whatever the nature of the Christian's creed might be, blah, 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 I've, I've never tried them. And he says, look, these words, when seen in the actual context of everything considered, these are not the words of a man with no prior knowledge of Christianity. He obviously does have knowledge of Christianity. He listed out our moral beliefs. He talks about communion, talks about that we worship on a fixed day and all this stuff. So these are rather more the words of a man who's trying to cover himself in case he's made a mistake. You know, he, he immediately follows... Uh, his key those key words of professing his ignorance by talking about look the curd the bad attitude of the christians had toward my authority was such that i i had to give them punishment in other words he's saying look treat emperor trajan just in case the creed these people hold to doesn't deserve punishment in your estimation i want you to know that they did something that did deserve punishment anyways they they had a bad attitude toward me so that's why i punished them you know th this isn't a an offhand reference indicating ignorance. It's more a bureaucratic literary technique. The ancient Romans lived in an honor-shame society. He's trying to save face. Uh, if in case he did go too far with the Christians or something like that, he's pulling a bureaucrat move by covering himself in case of error. He's not literally saying, I, I literally am ignorant. I have no idea what the Christians believe. I don't know what the right thing to do is here with them. I don't know what they're all about. This is J.P. Holding's argument. That's not literally what he's trying to say. I, I personally don't don't buy this. I, I think it does seem to say that he doesn't have any first knowledge, first-hand knowledge of basic facts about Jesus' existence. He wouldn't have done any independent research outside of the second-hand testimony he's getting from interrogating the Christians himself. I, I do think that the ignorance does seem to be, if you read it in context, sincere to an extent. I mean, obviously he's not totally ignorant. He's interrogated and he lists off all these things about them and he knows he knows enough about them to ban them or to punish them and that sort of thing. But I think that he's learning that on the fly. It's not like he's done some thorough investigation and has a deep understanding of their beliefs and he's kind of not exactly sure how to proceed. He, he's, he didn't try Christians before, so... The bottom line is here, I, I don't think that this can allow us to say, well, yeah, there, there should have been an independent study beyond just interrogating Christians themselves as to what they believe on Pliny's part. However, J.P. Holding provides an argument, an a priori argument, and he says, well, look, Pliny has unique qualifications. Pliny held a position as a state priest before being the governor. And his job as a state priest included acting as an overseer in the state religion. Using Cicero, he says, well, how would you be an overseer? Well, this would require him to safeguard religion by the good administration of the state and safeguard, safeguard the wise conduct of religion. So as a member of a priesthood, in order to safeguard the wise conduct of religion, 
he would have to be expected to know about religions in general and protect this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad. So this is J.P. Holding's a priori argument saying, well, given that he was a state priest, then he would have to know some, he would have had to do some kind of independent research on Christianity to know that it was bad and to safeguard against it and stuff like that. And while I think there's some truth to this, I, personally, I'm kind of agnostic on it because it, it's not like, oh, you, the Romans, you had to be an expert in all the religions, including the mystery cults coming over from the East or, you know, all the things. I think it just means you have to know definitely what the traditional Roman, Greco-Roman pagan pantheon is and what that's about and have a general sense. But I don't think that, that means, oh, he went into a, an in-depth research. Oh, okay, Mithras, um, what does this teach? What is what is Zoroastrianism? What is Christianity? Uh, he wasn't doing a comparative religions class or a religions class like what we do today, where we kind of survey all the religions and try to independently figure out what they're about and and stuff like that. So I'm agnostic um, on this argument in favor of the independent research of Pliny. Um, personally, I, I tend to believe that the, the only thing that's provable is Pliny's knowledge is solely coming from secondhand testimony by via interrogating these Christians, um, some of which were indeed authorities. Um, so that's the only line um, that I would do do here. But I do want to mention J.P. Holdings' interesting a priori argument about being a state, you know, kind of neutralizing his claim of ignorance by saying, well, maybe he doesn't really mean it. He's, he's just playing a bureaucrat and pretending, oh, you know, you're humble, ignorant servant. I know nothing. Please, please don't kill me. Um, kind of, kind of thing. That's his rebuttal. I, I'm not sure I buy it. Um, but it, it's definitely true in an honor shame society. It, it could be. I, there's definitely some kind of politicking going on there in, in the letter. Um, and then finally, there, there's positive reason to think that Pliny would have independently researched because of his role as a state priest, where he had to safeguard the real Roman religion against the evil, bad religions like Christianity and, and contaminations and stuff like that. So yeah, just something for you to consider. I, along with the majority of historians, don't kind of buy it. Um, I, I do think that he, there was a measure of ignorance that he was learning primarily, not from an independent investigation, but from interrogating the Christians themselves. Okay, so, so with that said, let's look at that second avenue then. What's the reliability of Pliny relying on these Christians? Because even though it's secondhand Christians, we know from Richard Bauckham, he, he interrogated authorities, de two deaconesses. And we know from Richard Bauckham, they trot the Jesus, historical Jesus sayings and doings religiously. And oral tradition was very strictly adhered to in terms of eyewitness testimony and preserving that testimony among the leaders of the ancient early Christian church. Um, so if, if Pliny got access to actual leaders of the early church and heard the secondhand testimony, obviously he gets all the details he mentions about us right in terms of our moral teachings, the Eucharist or, or the communion, worshiping on Sunday or on a fixed day and that sort of thing. So maybe they're reliable. We, the, reli the train of transmission is reliable as Richard Bauckham might try to argue and stuff like that. In that way, if he mentions there's a Christ figure being worshiped as a God, wouldn't that prove that he must have known Jesus was a historical person because they would have told him he actually existed, was crucified, 
they definitely would have told them the gospel message, right? For sure, I, I definitely think that. However, I, I don't think that we can prove, since we have the burden of proof, we're making the claim that the minimal historical Jesus exists. Why? Because we have the evidence from Pliny the Younger, and he would have had his information about Christ being worshipped as a god from reliable sources. Um, but even with the Christians, the problem is, even if we have authorities like those two female slaves who were deaconesses in the church, we don't know who they were. There, are, there aren't any specific references as to who these sources are that he's interrogating, who are the Christians, is where is he getting his information from? And we do know that in Asia there was plenty of heretics and fake Christians going, going around at that time. Um, so who knows? Who we don't we can't prove who Pliny is getting his information from. Even if authority authorities as Christians were definitely orthodox and proper true Christians, and or were let alone reliable in relaying information to him about the historical Jesus. Second, the second issue is. Look, look at what he's revealing. We're just, we can't just say, oh, well, he must have known about the resurrection of Christ and death, crucifixion of Jesus. I think, I think that Pliny did. It was in the cultural milieu. Even if he didn't get firsthand testimony from Christians, where we would expect them to at least relay the gospel message, even though he doesn't report on it, I think that Pliny knew it. It was still in the cultural milieu. We have graffiti from evil pagans or you know pagans in rome drawing jesus with a donkey head on the cross or something the earliest vile graffiti um mocking our lord and savior and that sort of thing from these pagans ignorant pagans but they were at least knew yeah you worship a crucified god aha and they mock you and stuff like that Pliny would have had the general cultural milieu in the sense okay yeah you worship this historical figure who died on the cross and stuff like that but that's not in his letter and it's kind of question begging so i can't use this letter to prove see he was a historical figure it just talks about christ as a god well that could be a myth uh, the, their beliefs could be mythical uh even if we take at face value everything is perfectly reliable as to what pliny says and pretend the christians were giving him exact uh information there, there's nothing there that proves a minimal historical Jesus existed. Those belief, those moral teachings, the Eucharist, their practices of meeting on Sunday and worship, singing hymns to Christ as though he was a, and worshiping him as though he was a god. I don't think that proves that there was a minimal historical Jesus. That could just apply to a myth as well. So for those reasons, I don't think that Pliny's evidence helps. I'm, I'm the very at maximum. I'm agnostic, fifty-fifty on the value of it or probably less I, I i don't think that it can be used to um prove that there was a minimal historical jesus and on that basis it will be ignored however there's also an additional issue here because mythicist richard carrier isn't so uh skeptical on the use usefulness of Pliny the younger he thinks that he can use it to slyly prove that mythicism is true so let's take a quick look at uh how carrier uses, or rather I should say misuses, um, Pliny's text to extrapolate and make some um, kind of outlandish claims against the Christian faith in favor of Jesus' mythicism. So Richard Carrier takes advantage of the clause where Pliny says, look, I'm totally ignorant uh, about Christians, I've never tried any Christians, never heard of them, or and stuff like that. 
Richard Carrier makes this weird extrapolation, unsubstantiated, wild, radical claim that, well, this proves there must Christianity must have experienced some kind of first century bottleneck of failure and then subsequent revival in the early second century. You know, he says, well, look, if he had never been present at any trial of Christians, he had no idea what they believed or why they were criminal and that sort of thing. And many Christians had said they, they left the faith they, after years, even decades, up to 25 years, they had left. So they're trying. He's, he says, by the time that Pliny wrote his letter, uh, it looks like even though he was the chief of police, the attorney general for the whole empire, he's never heard of any trials or been to any trials of Christians. Well, that seems to show that the Christians were dying off. They were dwindling. They were so minuscule compared to the overpopulated pagans that it just never even entered on Pliny's radar. And so Pliny's ignorance is used to show, look, Christianity, that proves that Christianity was dying. That's why nobody ever heard of it. It was it was almost dead. People that we you heard from Pliny, there were a lot of heretics who used to believe but have fallen away and damned themselves uh, on that basis. And he says, well, this must have been a widespread phenomenon, at least in Asia Minor. Christianity was dying off. But guess what? There must have obvi there obviously was a revival in the second century, early second century. And that's the Orthodox Christianity we know today. It just so happens to be when the Gospels were being written in the second century. Now, Carrier has a ridiculous, he's a hyper-radical skeptic that is proven wrong and falsified in terms of saying that the Gospels were written in the second century. Everyone with a PhD today basically says, no, it's a historically proven fact they were written in the first century AD. The Gospel of Mark very early, prior to 70 AD probably. Luke and Matthew in the mid-70s to mid-80s range. And then the Gospel of John in the 80s to 90s AD. And that's the by far the vast majority view of, by all credible biblical scholars. Um, you can hear Dr. Craig Keener on, on the show if you search for him. He proves that Acts was written in the first century as well, not in the second century. So Carrier, understand that Carrier's thesis here is based on highly controversial, even falsified. The, the historical evidence we have is overwhelmingly persuasive that Carrier is just wrong. The Gospels were not written in the second century. But he has this presupposition. So under his presupposition, he thinks... Look, everything lines up. Christianity was dying. By that, he means the mythical Christianity where Jesus was a myth. And that wasn't uh, attracting pe people like it was before. So in the early 2nd century, there's this revival, revamp. The Gospels came out, and they historicized Jesus. And then, oh, you're a historical Jesus? Well, that floats my boat. Okay, I'm a Christian again. And, and then there's this revival. That's his theory. And it's all based on this thing where Pliny... Just says in the beginning, uh, quote unquote, uh, let's see what he says. Let me. It is, it is my practice, my Lord, to refer to you in all matters in which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I've never participated in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know the offenses. It is the practice to punish or investigate um, and to what extent. Just on the basis of that, uh, once again, as um, J.P. Holding responded to, look, this paragraph is not saying, oh, I, I have total ignorance. I've never heard of Christians at all or their beliefs at all. That's going too far on the other side. I, I think that Carrier's out to lunch here and wrong about this, too. I, I do think that he was informed, even independently, just from the cultural milieu about Christians, the basic 
gospel message and that sort of thing. He didn't do any kind of independent, rigorous study of their beliefs, um, but he had a general sense of what they were, and through his interrogation, he knew certain specific details of Christianity and of Jesus Christ, the founder. Uh, again, nothing in this letter that can prove it, and it was a historical figure, even though I personally believe, given the culture of Malou, that, yeah, Pliny, Pliny did know that Jesus was a historical figure, but I'm being hyper-skeptical in my mythicism theories that from the letter itself, I I can't get make that inference because it's not there. But look what Carrier's doing. I mean, he's extrapolating huge just from that little line where he's talking about, look, I'm ignorant as to how to proceed, you know, how bad are their, their crime? Should I be killing these guys, giving them a break um, if they repent and stuff like that? That's what Pliny's talking about. He's ignorant, eh, ignorant of. Uh, literally, so I don't buy J.P. Holding's notion that it's all just non-literal. I do think that there's literal ignorance, but it's not so much about Jesus or their beliefs. Um, he's more talking about like how do I handle them? That's that's what he's talking about. But Carrier makes it try to say, well, he's totally ignorant. He's never even heard of Christians in his life, or a trial of a Christian or something like that. Look, he just says I've never participated in a trial of Christians. That doesn't mean he's never heard of it. Or, so Carrier's going way beyond the data here. And I had to laugh because he's actually twisting the meaning of the words. He, he also says, look, Christianity was dying. It died, had like one or two followers. Over-exaggerate. That's not what Carrier says. But he says it had so few followers that it was dying in the original myth-type form. Um, again, spurring on the need to historicize Jesus with the Gospels, and then all of a sudden, oh, uh, you, not a myth, but a real historical Jesus? Now I believe. Okay, sign me up. Um, this is his ridiculous extrapolation of a theory, and, and it just sounds ridiculous to me. It contradicts what Pliny the Younger says, right? I mean, it, it's, it contradicts in the last paragraph where he's talking about, look, Many persons of every age, every rank, both sexes, in the villages, in the towns, in the farms, in the cities. And, you know, he's complaining, look, that our temples were cleared out. They were almost deserted. No one was buying the sacrifices. Our religious rites had been long since neglected and that sort of thing. But finally, they're starting to be resumed. He flips it. It's, it's the pagans that, according to Pliny's literal words, was dying out. And then because they started persecuting innocent Christians, then there was starting to be a little bit of a revival. Carrier f totally flips this on his head and says, no, it was the Christians that were really dying out. The pagans were doing great. And uh, then there was a second century revival of Christianity because they invented the Gospels and invented this notion of a historical Jesus, not a mythical floating Jesus or something like that. That's... that's. Um, total rubbish is reasoning I, I don't want to use overly bombastic words but it just seems i how do you get that you know and, and carry carrier does address this to his credit he does say well look this par last paragraph it's all it's not literal he doesn't really mean it, it it's kind of like jp holding saying well when he talks about being ignorant he doesn't mean that literally richard carrier has no problem taking that totally literally in fact too literally but then in the last paragraph, when he's talking about how the pagans are dying out and Christianity seems to be exploding on the scene, he says he takes that not to be literal. It's just hyperbolic language. And to some extent, it, it is. I mean, obviously, the temples weren't totally cleared out and, and that sort of thing. They weren't almost completely deserted. But it, there was a noticeable decline. Christianity 
was growing and it caught his attention in Asia. This is clear, clearly what he says if you just read the words of Pliny's letter. And Richard Carrier, it just baffles me. He, he just says the exact opposite. And I, I find that not responsible scholarship in my in my humble opinion, trying to be as charitable as I can to, to the mythicist side here with Dr. Carrier. I, I don't see how he gets that any more than I see how J.P. Holding can, can say when he's talking about his ignorance um, or not participating in trials of Christians, oh, that's not literal. He didn't really mean that. He was just sucking up to the emperor and trying to be a, a bureaucrat and stuff like that. I, I don't think that's totally true either. I think that there's some literal... I don't think he ever did participate in a trial of Christians. That doesn't mean he was ig totally ignorant, never heard of them or, or something like that. But yeah, so that that's it. That's Carrier's claim here based on this ignorance and supposedly saying it's totally flipped on its head christianity was dying and this gave us the impetus for the gospels and a historical jesus figure in the second century i don't believe that that that's a failure as an argument in my opinion so all right cool so so that's it with pliny as you saw it's the last one it, it pa pliny's evidence passes every criterion in terms of him his reliability the dating uh he had opportunity but it, it ultimately comes down to the reliability of Pliny's sources. And I don't think there's enough evidence to say that he definitely did independent, had independent knowledge of Christianity outside of basic cultural milieu from pagans, what he heard on bathroom walls or something and graffiti and stuff like that, uh, and his interrogations of Christians through secondhand testimony. And what's more, even if everything was reliable, even if we could prove that all of his sources were totally reliable going back to the historical Jesus, there's nothing that he says that allows us directly to infer the existence of a minimal historical Jesus on the basis of what, what is said in the letter. Um, and I have to be strict within the scope of that. I can't make an assumption and say, well, everyone knew about Jesus being crucified. There's a donkey painting on the wall, so Pliny knew that. He must have known Jesus was a historical figure who was crucified. Again, that's not in his letter. I'm not going to extrapolate. So on that basis, I think this... Evidence from Pliny the Younger's letter is a failure. I, I agree with most historians that it doesn't allow us to prove anything about the truth of a minimal historical Jesus. Okay, so let's move on to the next non-Christian evidence from the category of ancient Roman government officials. And this will be the la fourth and last one, because again, we covered the three in this one. We did Pliny the Younger, the Trajan's Emperor Trajan's response, and the Emperor Hadrian's supporting letter on that front. So here's the fourth and final one. It's the acts of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, the eyewitness who crucified Jesus himself. Interesting. How, how does the, what is this evidence about? Okay, so my treatment of this is going to be very short and sweet. Um, it's it's going to be another disappointment. Um, I, so, okay, who was Pontius Pilate? Obviously, as I said, he was the Roman governor of Judea, the province of Judea during the time of Jesus. He was the guy who crucified, scourged our... Um, Jesus and you know he was a direct pagan eyewitness to Jesus's crucifixion and existence historical existence okay so what is it that was said so this is the act comes from the acts of Pontius Pilate and we're not talking there were many frauds and known forgeries that historians know about from later centuries under this name we're not talking about those documents we're talking about the original acts of Pontius Pilate himself the 
correspondences he would have written in twenty in thirty A.D. or to the emperor and that sort of thing. So basically, there are two sets of official records, as we noted in part one of our Jesus mythicism refuted. So that uh, in the first place, there are two types of archives in ancient Rome. There is the Actus Senatus, where composed of the minutes of the senatorial meetings of the the ancient Roman Senate. Um, these would not have contained discussions of Christ or Christianity. But then there was the commentary Principis, and these were composed of the correspondences by the governors like Pontius Pilate sent to the emperors from various parts of the empire. And this is where it's the, alleged to be called the Acts of Pontius Pilate, the original talking about his crucifixion of Jesus, thereby proving he was in fact a historical figure. And unfortunately, right away we're going to have uh, problems. Why? Uh, we don't have the original autographs of the Acts of Pontius Pilate. They were lost. That's why there was forgeries. We don't even have extant manuscripts or copies of what Pilate said here that have been preserved to us. And apparently they uh, were lost pretty early on. And that's why, again, there was so many forgeries in the 5th, 6th centuries, whenever the, forgery, the forged Acts of Pontius Pilate date from. But what we do have here is two Christians talking about it even further is a problem is they don't directly quote from the Acts of Pontius Pilate themselves, they just allude to it. They paraphrase, you know, they say some stuff and they say, if you don't believe me, check out the Acts of Pontius Pilate in the official records, because he says the same thing. Uh, so we don't even have quotes as to what this Acts of Pontius Pilate document said. So these are huge problems for historians. Uh, even Dr. Gary Habermas wouldn't uh, use this as evidence. But nonetheless, what does it say? So we have in 150 AD, Justin Martyr, the early church, Christian church father, says, And the expression, they pierced my hands and my feet, was used in reference to the nails of the cross, which were fixed in his hands and feet. And after he was crucified, they cast lots upon his vesture, and that they crucified him, parted it among them. And that these things did happen, you can ascertain in the Acts of Pontius Pilate. Furthermore, uh, Justin, uh, the early church father Tertullian, in around 200 to 220 AD, he's the guy who invented the word Trinity. He says, Tiberius, accordingly, in whose days the Christian name made its entry into the world, having himself received intelligence from Palestine by Pontius Pilate of events, which had clearly shown the truth of Christ's divinity, brought the matter before the Roman Senate, with his own decision in favor of Christ. The Senate, because it had not given the approval itself, rejected his proposal out of hand. Caesar held to his opinion about Christ's divinity, threatening wrath against all accusers of the Christians afterwards. So these are the two quotes that we have, or allusions to what the Acts of Pontius Pilate said. Now, are they reliable? Uh, no. So, unfortunately, with Justin Martyr, he's the earliest reference in 150 AD in his work called the First Apology, Book 68. Um, I think X in Roman numerals, X, L, V, and then 3. I think that's 68. I'm, I'm not good with Roman numerals. But anyways, yeah, dated in 150 AD. His, his reference, no, it, we don't have any credible credibility or reliable tracing of the sources. Um... And it's not even clear that Justin Martyr knows what he's talking about. He seems to be kind of confusing a different uh, apocryphal gospel known as the Gospel of Nicodemus 
yes, the Gospel of Nicodemus, which is a Gnostic Gospel, apocryphal, and he seems to be under sort of a misunderstanding that these are the acts of the the acts of Pilate or something like that. So everyone knew that there were official correspondences. No, undoubtedly, there were an acts of Pontius Pilate that did exist in the official Roman records. He would have had to have contributed and, and given official records, and he would have definitely written about Jesus and the crucifixion that he did, uh, thereby ushering in the atonement unknowingly to him. Justin Martyr's quote along, we can't prove it's a reliable quote, and it comes from this reliable doctorate. Um, document, let alone that it was from the word of Pontius Pilate, thereby proving there was a historical Jesus. So this is worthless. What about Tertullian? So this is why I wanted to include the Acts of Pilate, because of Tertullian. And if you remember in what I just said, I made a huge mistake. with Pl In Pliny the Younger, I mentioned, remember Tertullian, he was this excellent scholar. He invented historical criticism and all that, um, I got confused with the names, I'm sorry. So I, I meant, in part one, I was talking about Sextus Julius Africanus. He was the credible guy who invented historical criticism and textual criticism criteria and, and all of this, had, had access to the Roman records and was uh, on the inside as a Christian with the Roman emperor's household. Not Tertullian. Um, so Tertullian is the guy who invented the word Trinity, for example. Um, now, Tertullian was a great guy, a very reliable Christian, but he's not, I, I can't, he doesn't have any connection to the official Roman records, or, or he would not have had access to the real acts of Pontius Pilate in his day, um, very probably, so he wouldn't have had that as a source. So because of that, Tertullian's uh, thing is not provable. Also, what he does report seems obviously ridiculous. The Emperor Tiberius, that's very implausible. He was a secret Christian. He knew Jesus was God in the flesh, uh, from even if he understood that as a pagan, um, and wanted to deify, went to the Senate and said, we got to deify, don't discriminate against Christians. He's God. I saw, I saw his miracles, or I heard about his miracles. And then he wanted to deify Jesus in the Senate, but the Senate disagreed. Rubbish. Uh, that never happened at all. And we know the way Tiberius was. He was a deranged, cruel, filthy old man uh, living on the island of Capri in his final years, engaging in debauchery on that island, murder, sex, uh, all the filth that um, a sinner can get involved in. And he was doing that stuff at this time. He never would have heard about Jesus or considered him a miracle worker or a god in any sense. I mean, this was, this was during the time when he was training Caligula to be his next successor. And it's because of Tiberius that Caligula turned out to be the uh, cruel despot that he turned out to be. So, uh, yeah, it's just highly implausible and falsified that these are reliable uh, or credible testimonies, unfortunately. But I, I wanted to include this um, because I mistook Tertullian for sexist Julius Africanus, and I thought there could be an angle, given how reliable Africanus is and that he had access to the records uh, but I mistook the names by accident I mistook Tertullian for Africanus there and messed up uh, so on that front yeah this is the acts of Pilate garbage um, they, they don't work as uh, proofs for the minimal historical Jesus okay cool so so that does it for the category of four Roman government officials and as we saw none of the government documents from the the four documents from the government officials, the Acts of Pontius Pilate, the letter from the Emperor Hadrian, the letter from Trajan, 
or the letter from Pliny the Younger uh, prove that there was a minimal historical Jesus in my estimation. The closest is that Pliny the Younger, letter 96 in book 10, um, where J.P. Holding at least provides a possibility that maybe it does uh, speak of a historical Christ and we can infer, infer, or it's implicit, it's implied that Pliny knows there is a historical Jesus. I don't think we can get there, so I, I you know, I'm agnostic on, on it. And on that basis, yes, yeah, so, so far this category of Roman government pagan Roman government officials has failed. It, it doesn't allow us to say, yes, probably there was a minimal historical Jesus. So on that basis, we're still where we were before in part when we ended off with part one. We've got those only two successful ancient historians, Josephus and Tacitus, that allow us to say, yep, probably minimal historical Jesus existed. But we're not done with our pagan non-Christian sources. We now have a couple of miscellaneous pagan Roman sources that mention Jesus, and I want to go over those, you know, Mar Marabar Serapion and Lucian of Samosota. And there's also the famous uh, crit pagan critic Celsus, uh, who Origen uh, preserves in 248 AD. He kind of critiqued this second century critic of Christ pagan critic of Christianity, Celsus. Um, what is, uh, he's another miscellaneous pagan source that might prove there's a minimal historical Jesus. Can they be used to prove the minimal historical Jesus existed? Well, uh, let's start with Lucian of Samosota. Uh, I always uh, wanted to start. He was a... Uh, who is Lucian of Samosota? Well, he was basically... There's some controversy about his dates, but uh, most scholars or historians say he was born around 125 AD and died sometime around 180 AD. We don't have precise dates. Uh, Mike Lacona says gives his lifespan in his book as 115 to 280. I guess he's giving sort of a wider branch, but most most of the scholars during my research date Lucian of Samosota sometime 125 to 180 AD. Uh, that in around that area, he was a Greek or Syrian. He claims to be a Syrian satirist and a pagan, and he sat wrote many satires, uh, many dialogues like the Dialogues of the Gods. Dialogues of the Dead, The Sale of Lives, uh, stuff like that, all ridiculing Greek mythology and Greek philosophy. He, he also uh, wrote a work entitled True History, which will be interesting as we assess, uh, assess this guy and what he said. But yeah, just to give a brief biography, so Lucian was born at Samosata, hence his name, Lucian of Samosata, in uh, Camagene. And he calls himself a Syrian. Uh, he may or may not have been of Semitic stock. We don't know. And the exact duration of his life is unknown. Uh, as I said, we have those general time frames. But it's probable that he was born not long before 125 AD and died not long after 180. Um, his life history has been given down to us and preserved to us in his own writings. We have an autobiography. So notably through a dream that he narrates in uh, the doubly indicted... Uh, the Fisher and the Apology work of his. And if his dream is to be taken seriously, and most historians usually do take it seriously, as a true autobiographical remark by him, he began his career as an apprentice to his uncle as a sculptor, but he became disgusted uh, with that line of work. He says, this is filth, um, this is for the birds. Um, and really, he gave up that prospect for to engage in what he saw as his calling 
to give up and go into rhetoric, you know, the branch of literary profession, which was at that time most in favor. You know, orators were highly respected and they became rich and made lots of money if they were good at it. Um, now, theoretically, the vocation of rhetorician uh, was really just to plead in court and that sort of thing. We, we know that St. Augustine was like that, um, became famous through that uh, before he became a Christian. And yeah, they had to compose pleas for others and to teach the art of pleading and, uh, and that sort of thing. But his pr actual practice uh, of his vocation was far less important in Lucian's eyes, based on what he tells us, than his avocation. Uh, and that consisted in going around, traveling around the ancient Mediterranean world from place to place and from country to country, displaying his ability to speak as an orator before the educated classes. Um, you know, he traveled all the way around the world, Ionia, Greece, Italy, even to Gaul, which is modern day France. And he became so rich and so famous because of this. You know, samples of his repertory are still extant today in his works. and. Um, and that sort of thing. Uh, so he became very, very famous uh, for his satires that he would give uh, and his um, rhetoric that he would give. And he was well known for being able to entertain the audiences with uh, his lectures and that sort of thing. Now, just understand, so, so Lucian was not a philosopher, a professional philosopher, nor even a moralist, uh, but a rhetorician. That was his mission in life. Um, so he wasn't necessarily always trying to reform society or to chastise it, but he simply wanted to amuse it. He wanted to entertain it. That was his main goal as an orator. Um, he was very cynical and that sort of thing. As I said, he mocked and gave satires against all types of people, and that includes Christians. He was very derisive towards Christians, and he was very cynical towards their gullibility and stupidity uh, as he saw it, um, as we're going to find out um, he talks about Christians in several of his works, uh, including the work that we're going to be talking about here, which which is The Passing of Peregrinus. And in, in that book, The Passing of Peregrinus, paragraphs 11 to 16 is where he speaks about Christians, and he mentions the historical Jesus twice in that engagement. Um, okay, so, so what is this Passing of Peregrinus? What is that all about? Basically, this gives this is an account of the life and death of a cynic philosopher um, who, for a time in his early life, went over to the side of Christianity. He claimed to be a Christian, and he practiced it to the point of imprisonment under a very tolerant administration over in Syria. And after returning to cynicism uh, in his old age, um, he became sort of enamored with Indic ideas and precedents and that sort of thing. So he ultimately died uh, in and around 165, just after the Olympic Games in ancient Olympia. Yeah, right, right. Basically, this is where uh, uh, Lucian, Lucian comes in and he writes about this event very soon after the event. So that's why it's, we get the date around 165 to at the latest 170 AD. But 165 is what the majority of historians go. That co coincides with the Olympiad dating system and that sort of thing. So we think, yeah, this in terms of when this was written, it was 165 AD um, is the most likely date. And he wrote very soon after this event, of which he was an eyewitness, the death of Peregrinus um, in ancient Olympia, uh, which is in Greece. Basically, he's 
trying to mock this guy and say this guy is a corrupt piece of garbage. Uh, he's a con artist and a skinflint. Okay, so so yeah, that's the context. He's cutting this guy up and he's talking about how he conned pe groups of people one after the other throughout his entire life. Obviously, it's paragraph 11 that things start getting interesting to us because this is the point where Peregrinus is scamming the Christians. So here's what he says, quote-unquote, the relevant bits are, paragraph starting in paragraph 11, it was then that he learned the wondrous lore of the Christians, talking of Peregrinus, by associating with their priests and scribes in Palestine, and how else could it be? In a, in a trice, he made them all look like children, for he was a prophet, cult leader, head of the synagogue, and everything, all by himself. He interpreted and explained some of their book, their holy books, and even composed some. Uh, and they revered him as a god, made use of him as a lawgiver, and set him down as a protector, next after that other, to be sure whom they still worship, the man who was crucified in Palestine, because he introduced this new cult into the world. So that's the reference to Jesus. It doesn't call him by name, the first reference here, but it locates, it says, well, look, they... The Christians were so stupid, they thought this guy was a god, they thought he was a prophet, a cult leader, a lawgiver, and he helped interpret their the Bible, the New Testament, their holy books, and they revered him just as a god, um, just like their original lawgiver, Jesus, the one who originated this in Palestine and was crucified and was a normal human man worshipped as a god. Uh, he introduced this new cult in the world, so that's incredible right there. Now, in paragraph 12, I'm going to skip over that. That's where he just talks about, well, how Peregrinus, because of these beliefs, as a Christian, he was thrown in jail for his beliefs, and he took advantage of the Christians there. He, he said, uh, keep giving me money, and he became very wealthy in prison because the Christians kept bribing and giving money uh, to him and trying to help him out and stuff like that. And eventually he got out and escaped uh, through treachery with the governor of Syria, and uh, he just totally, eventually totally abandoned the Christians, took all their money and said, ha ha, I'm off to the next cult to pretend I'm one of them. It's in paragraph 13 where I'm going to pick up, again, he's starting to talk about the Christians and we get our second mention of Jesus or allusion to Jesus. And he says, quote unquote, the poor wretches have convinced themselves, talking of the Christians, first and foremost, that they are going to be immortal and live for all time, in consequence of which they despise death and even willingly give themselves into its custody. Most of them do this. Furthermore, their first lawgiver, Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once. For all, by denying the Greek gods, and by worshipping that crucified sophist himself, alias Jesus, again, he doesn't use the name Jesus, but that's who he's talking about, and it's obvious. No historian in the world would ever deny that. So again, quoting, and by worshipping that crucified sophist wise man himself and living under his laws, therefore they despise all things indiscriminately and consider them common property. They're communists. Um, <laughs> sorry, um, receiving such doctrines traditionally without any definite evidence. So if any charlatan or trickster like Peregrinus is able to profit by occasions, comes among them, he quickly acquires sudden wealth by imposing upon these simple folks. Uh, so that's the quote, the relevant bits. And you, two mentions of Jesus, again, not mentioned by name, 
uh, but we get so many interesting details here. So what do we learn from, from this quote from Lucian, um, talking about Peregrinus and the beliefs of the Christians? Well, number one, Jesus was worshipped as a god and lawgiver by the early Christians. Gospels confirmed. Number two, Jesus was their original lawgiver, introducing new teachings in Palestine. Gospels confirmed. Number three, Jesus was a historical man, a regular man, that was crucified in Palestine because or on account of his new teachings. Gospels confirmed. Number four, Jesus taught all the Christians that they are brothers from the, and sisters from the moment of conversion. Gospels confirmed. Number five, he taught them to deny false gods and live under his laws. So we kind of covered that with the lawgiver. And Jesus was also a sage or a wise man. And obviously, in Lucian's mind, this is satire. He's not a wise man. He's a corrupt fool or something like that. But obviously, wise man, that's kind of the, how Greeks would have called it uh, when they said sage or something like that. They meant, oh, he's pretending to be a, a wise man or something and fooling the gullible. Um, you know, that's the sarcastic way that Lucian means it. But nevertheless, Jesus is known as a sage, Gospels confirmed. Um, so, so yeah, this is incredible. Um, this is much better than Pliny the Younger, because uh, we actually get references to Jesus' life, death, and ministry here. And uh, who he was said to be a historical man, a man, a regular man living in history uh, in Palestine. Um, so, so, yeah, this is... This is great. Uh, J.P. Holding uh, himself, he says, look, from this satirist and playwright of the second century, we have two quotes uh, that absolutely confirm various aspects of Jesus and his ministry, uh, death and resurrection. So, yeah, this is incredible. Um, okay, so what do we do by way of evaluation? Well, as I said, I've already gotten into the dating and mentioned that. So, in the first place, um, I'll just expand a little bit upon, upon this. So with Lucian's writings, we have lots of his writings, uh, dozens and dozens of them. Very few of his writings can be dated with any degree of accuracy, unfortunately. Um, there was an effort by a group to put to order them in a semi-chronological basis, and that's been made by scholars like M. Croissant. Um, but obviously, he can't be entirely successful. We, we just don't know. Historians just don't know exactly the exact dates of many of these writings of his. Typically, they just follow the order of the best manuscript, the manuscript Vaticanus um, that we have of his writings. Um, we just follow that and say, well, this was written first, then later, and that sort of thing. That's what most historians do. However, with our work in particular, this one is one of the ones where we have more certainty of the dating of it. As I said, uh, most historians date it um, somewhere between 165 at the latest 170 AD, most favoring the 165 AD because there's that internal uh, chronological dating point, the death of Pagrinus at the certain Olympiad, at, at the end of the Olympics in 165 AD. And that allows us to date it with pretty pretty much um, certainty or confidence as to when it was written. So great. Okay, so now we know what was who uh, Lucian is, what he said about Jesus, why he's relevant uh, for Christians trying to prove a minimal historical Jesus, and we know when he wrote. Now we need to evaluate well, what's the reliability of this quote. Can we trust that this proves that there is a minimal historical Jesus or not? 
Okay, well, the first step, uh, as we do in systematic order with each of these evidences, what is the textual reliability of uh, this particular work? So, obviously, we have no original autographs uh, from the author, just as we don't for anyone in the ancient world. Um, but we do have um, various manuscripts or copies of his works. There are about 150 manuscripts total claiming to be of Lucian, representing a total of about 82 of his alleged works, more or less. Um, now, these manuscripts, there's various ones. So the, the oldest and most reliable one, the, the one that I said that most historians today kind of use to get a general sense of the chronology of his datings, the chronological order at least, if not the exact dates, is the Vaticanus manuscript, which dates to the 9th or 10th centuries AD. Uh, so that's one of the earliest. There's also the Herolinus from the 9th or 10th century AD, the uh, Marcianus and the Laurentianus from the 11th century AD, um, and a bunch of other manuscripts dating around the same time. So in the early medieval or, or late Dark Age period, uh, Vatic Vaticanus is the best of the manuscripts for preserving most of his writings, uh, and it's as well the earliest that we have. Um, so that's where it that's where it stands in terms of the manuscripts. However, no historians really doubt that Lucian. Well, uh, let me say this: that there is widespread doubt uh, among historians on various uh, several of of these manuscripts that they're skeptical that Lucian wrote. They, they're not sure if he was actually the author of them or not. So these you know, works are like the Halcyon, Nero, Philopatris, Swiftfoot, Hippias, Cynic, uh, Love. There, there are several writings that uh, scholars are, I don't know, we don't know if he actually wrote that or not. It's been attributed to Lucian, but we don't know. However, the great news for us as Christians trying to prove a minimal historical Jesus is that's totally irrelevant. No one cares because no one denies that Lucian wrote um, the passing of Peregrinus. And that's the only text that we care about because that's the one we're using to prove the minimal historical Jesus. And everyone says, yep, uh, he wrote that. Nobody denies that. Not even the mythicists themselves. Um, even they admit, yep, uh, this is a true quote from Lucian of Samosata. So we don't have to worry about the textual transmission, um, even though there are some questions regarding the textual transmission and preservation of some of Lucian's works or many Lucian works. Uh, that doesn't apply in the case of the particular uh, writing that we're using to prove our case here. So we uh, can avoid that. We don't have to worry about that. So ultimately, reliability question comes down to, okay, well, what is the reliability of the truthfulness of Lucian himself as a satirist? Um, and or the sources, the reliability of the sources he's using for his information about this minimal historical Jesus. In the first place, we have to admit there are certain evident problems here, right? Because in the first place, it's dated at best 165 AD or thereabouts. That's really late. Um, you know, that's it's still within our 150-year gap. Anything 180 AD or before we're using in terms of our sources that's sort of the standard we set up here when we started in part one so it fits within the range but it is late um, a lot can happen in 100 
you know, 40 years or whatever it was since the time of Christ until he wrote this in 165 AD. Now, one thing, a point in our favor here is uh, Lucian is an eyewitness of Peregrinus. He knows him personally and was there when he died and that sort of thing. So he would have had access to Peregrinus to ask him about Christians' beliefs. Perhaps he was aware of Christians and talked to them uh, and that sort of thing as well. So he did have firsthand testimony, uh, at least to the events of Peregrinus that he's talking about. So we can absolutely trust him on that front. Um, however, again, he's not an eyewitness of, G of the historical Jesus. He's just getting beliefs secondhand from the Christians and or from Peregrinus telling him and the pagans that left telling him what the Christians believe. So he's, he's accessing this cultural milieu or something like that. So that's kind of at face value where, where we're at. Uh, there's something good, but there's also some, some hurdles to overcome here if we're going to be using this. Now, it has to be totally admitted. I agree with the vast majority of historians, including Christian biblical scholars and historians of Bible-believing, biblical inerrantists, Jesus-believing Christians, that Lucian did ne never did any kind of rigorous independent investigation into the historical Jesus. He would never have accessed official records or documents, uh, nor even have had the opportunity really to, to look up anything in public libraries about Jesus or something like that. So very probably his main source of information isn't an independent information. It comes from asking or talking about talking to Christians and or because Lucian is kind of a pompous jackrabbit um, to say, uh, to put it that way, and he's only in the social elites of pagans. Maybe he didn't actually talk to Christians directly, but he would have talked to Peregrinus and gotten those intimate specific details about Christian beliefs and doings and that sort of thing from him as an eyewitness. And also he would have been privy to the general cultural milieu. Um, you know, what, what pagans in general knew about of Christians and their beliefs and their founder, Jesus Christ, in, in the mid to late second century. So I think those are, we have to admit, those are his primary sources um, for using it. And it doesn't sound too too reliable or too good. Uh, at least at face value again. And the, as I said, most historians don't take this to be any conclusive evidence. They say it's totally irrelevant or it's worthless. Again, even Bible-believing Christian historians that I respect, such as Dr. Mike Lacona, in his uh, book, again, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, which I'll post up the dissertation in the blog so you can get that for free and see this with your own eyes. But he basically says... Um, look, I agree when it comes to Lucian, he agrees with the other scholar, John Meyer, Jesus scholar, John Meyer. And he says, in regard to Lucian, he says, quote unquote, no doubt Lucian is reflecting the common knowledge, quote unquote, in the air at that time in the mid to late second century, not an independent source of historical data about Jesus. Lucian and these pagan historians tell us what educated pagans of the second century knew or believed about Jesus, nothing more. And then Mike Lacona says, I assign this text of Lucian a rating of not useful. So it's the exact same, oops, uh, Pliny the Younger, not useful again. Ah, uh, that's not good. Um, likewise, obviously skeptics say the same thing. So from Infidels, Jeffrey J. Lauder says this about Lucian. 
quote-unquote, nevertheless, given that Lucian's statement was written near the end of the second century, it seems rather unlikely that he had an independent sources of information concerning the historicity of Jesus. Lucian may have relied upon Christian sources, or common knowledge, and or even the earlier pagan reference, an earlier pagan reference, Cornelius Tacitus. But since Lucian does not specify his sources, we will simply never know. Um, so that's kind of the consensus view. Even Bible-believing Christians are very skeptical of using Lucian um, as proof that the minimal historical Jesus existed. And guess what? I fully, I uh, mainly agree, and I fully agree with these scholars in the fact that Lucian was merely getting his information from common knowledge and or perhaps hearsay from uh, Christians at the time, uh, which is secondhand info. Um, and again, it was quite late, so that's problematic, uh, and or perhaps Peregrinus. I'm not sure about the reference to Tacitus, if he was using Tacitus, I, I'm not sure about that, um, but that's what the skeptic believes. So yeah, the, these are definitely issues, but I just want to say in terms of the lateness, I don't think that the lateness is a re good reason to dismiss Lucian uh, out of hand. I agree with J.P. Holding when he says, quote-unquote, critics may claim that Lucian's reference is far too past the time of Jesus to be of any value. However, the lateness of this reference is more than made up for by Lucian's critical capa capabilities and cannot be used to therefore devalue this passage. Mere appeal to lateness is not a sufficient argument, for otherwise a modern historian cannot write a reliable account of the Civil War. And he's absolutely right on this. So I think that the lateness is, at face value, a, pro a very problematic element. It allows for a lot more doubt and skepticism a priori. But, um, as we'll see, J.P. Moreland's alluding to the fact that when it comes to this writing in particular, we have relevant, sufficient reasons and arguments to think that the lateness is not a problem with respect to Lucian here. And I'm about, I'll, I'll get into that in a, in a moment. Um, and I, but yeah, I just wanted to say I agree. JP, just because it dates to 165 doesn't prove that it's garbage. And I think that a lot of historians just kind of mindlessly assume that, possibly even Christian scholars. I don't, I'm not going to accuse Michael Kona. He is not mindless, uh, trust me. He's way smarter than me, more knowledgeable than me. He's done his homework. Um, but I do think that in his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, you know, he gives a paragraph to Lucian, and I think that was too glib, too quick. I, I, I'm not sure that he gave um, gave it its due, to be honest, with these pagan pagan sources. Um, but obviously, his main aim is the minimal relevant, the minimal facts approach to the resurrection. So he, he kind of wants to sweep under the rug, forget about the pagan stuff. We can prove Jesus, just give me the Bible and minimal facts, and I can prove Jesus rose from the dead from that. So that's his emphasis, and I totally agree and like that approach. I use it myself, um, you know, a minimum to a moderate facts approach for the proving the resurrection of Jesus. But if we're just being as true as we can as secular historians, um, I do think that Lucian deserves a little bit more consideration than is given to by a lot of a lot of scholars and that there, there's this tendency to just dismiss any and all frivolous pagan sources that are late really really late and just not give them their due so yeah uh let's let's see if that is the case or not it is Lucian 
rubbish? Or um, is there perhaps a way we can use this to prove a minimal historical Jesus? Okay, well, let's start with the reliability of Lucian himself, because some uh, lay skeptics or, or mythicists have kind of slammed Lucian as, as being totally unreliable. Look, he, his rhetorician, his main goal as a satirist is to entertain people. He doesn't care about truth or care about, you know, refining or reforming a society and stuff like that. We ourselves read that quote from historians, right, talking about that his main goal was to entertain and to amuse his audience of educated pagans. So, so yeah, when he's exposing these shams of Peregrinus, his zeal isn't at all for the truth, but only for applause, only for renown and recognition among his peers. That's the main goal. So, therefore, we can't trust anything Lucian says. He would have no reason to be accurately reporting truth, historical truths about Jesus. However, this is total uh, rubbish. Um, every historian in the world, including mythicists now, say that this kind of objection is totally foolish and, and just wrong. Many notable critics, including Dr. Zeller, Bernays, uh, Crosset, who we mentioned before, who's a, a scholar in Lucian specifically, and uh, William, William Owitz, um, they did all dissent from this interpretation. Modern historians, by and large, don't agree with this in the 21st century because we have absolute proof from Lucian himself proving that he cared about truth beyond just entertaining an audience. Truth was paramount. He might not have given a, a rat's patoot about reforming society or making moral, moral lessons or points, but when it comes to truth, oh, he cared about that, my friend. He cared about that way more than just entertaining an audience. And you're just ignorant if you deny it. Let me prove why, why that's the case. So as I said, all these historians agree with this. Um, his thirst for glory is just not an adequate explanation for his works here. It's absolute truth that he cares about as being paramount. And and this is this is true in general of the second century. You're just ignorant of writers in the second century if you think that they don't care about truth at all, historical truth at all. Um, you know, there is particularly among Greeks of the second century, there is this driving force or motive with Greeks to get the historical facts proper. And Lucian himself not only knew the man in knew Peregrinus himself as an eyewitness, um, but he also knew others who knew him and spoke with them. For, for example, later he mentions a guy named Demonax and stuff like that. So yeah, this is not just some forgery that he made up on the spot, making up facts as he goes. No, this is firmly grounded in historical facts. And furthermore, J.P. Uh, Holding, he also, the, the Christian apologist, he studied this and he says, look, this reference has been seriously undervalued. There is very good reason to accept Lucian's testimony as solid evidence for the existence of Jesus and for historical data about Jesus' life. One of Lucian's lesser-known works is a treatise called The Way to Write History. Mike Lacona loves Lucian. He quotes from this, this work specifically all the time to prove that historians in the ancient world cared absolutely about preserving historical truth. And Lucian especially was very strict about it. It was paramount. And it was th this, the way to write history was addressed to his friend Philo. And we get various quotes that prove Lucian cared about historical accuracy. So what am I talking about? Let's quote Lucian himself. 
in this The Way to Write History book that he wrote. Well, Lucian says, quote unquote, history abhors the intrusion of any least scruple of falsehood. It is like the windpipe, which the doctors tell us will not tolerate a morsel of stray food, not even a morsel of false BS. Lucian would wipe, mop the floor with you if you dared put any false, secondary false detail into his works. Furthermore, he goes on, the historian must sacrifice to no god but truth. No, it doesn't care about entertaining, cares about the god of truth. He must neglect all else. His sole rule and unerring guide is this, to think not of those who are listening to him now, but of the yet unborn who shall seek his converse. So, yeah, uh, this is devastating for these skeptics that dared say that Lucian didn't care at all about the historical accuracy of the things he's reporting. Uh, quite on the contrary, Lu Lucian shows utter disdain for anyone who would dare, even ones that wrote generally good history, but who would make up secondary details to fill in the gaps of their histories. And as we saw, this, this was acceptable practice at that time for historians to fill in the gaps and make up certain things. But Lucian, nope, can't do that. And he made a satire of Thucydides, who was a famous Greek philosopher. Sorry, not philosopher. He, he, a historian. In fact, he's the father of modern history itself, of the top subject of history. He invented it. He invented history. So this is the caliber of person that Lucian has, has the cojones to say, you're a fake historian. You're not as good as me. You're not scrupulous. You made up secondary details by inventing speeches in your th in your thing that people didn't actually say. And Lucian takes him to task, saying he's too frivolous with the historical truth and facts. From centuries back, back during the, the wars between Greek Athens and Persia and that sort of thing. Um, but he was following the ancient practice of giving a speech in character. It's Historically speaking, total rubbish. The guy didn't say that. But it's in the character of something he might have said on that occasion. And that was acceptable history at that time. Lucian says, nope, not with me, my friend. He says, quote unquote, the flood of rhetoric which follows is so copious and remarkable that it drew tears from me. Ye graces, tears of laughter, most of all, where the elephant Afrianis drawing to a close makes mention with weeping and distressful moans of all those costly dinners and toasts but he is a very ajax in his conclusion he draws his sword gallantly as an Athenaeus should and in sight of all cuts his throat over the grave and god knows it was high time for an execution if or if if only oratory could be a felony uh, so he's saying it should be a felony what thucydides did in making up this horse trash that never happened and embellishing his works um, again acceptable practice for historians at the time Thucydides didn't do anything wrong he didn't do nothing uh, as they say well that's not the case for Lucian Lucian is so zealous for the truth that conquers all else doesn't who cares about your entertaining your peeps of your contemporary generation who cares about making up false secondary falsehoods he was scrupulous for the truth um, he was a modern-day guy, modern-day historian, basically, is, is how he saw it. So, yeah, uh, that's why virtually every historian on the planet would laugh at you if you say, well, Lucian wasn't reliable. No, he absolutely, scientifically, historically proven fact, the guy cared about the historical truth and did everything he could 
to be historically accurate and would not accept secondary, unproven secondary details and report those as facts in any way. And this is so uh, proven so much that even hyper-skeptics and mythicists like Jeffrey J. Lauder all admit this. So I'll be linking my blog to an article on infidels.org where he talks about this evidence from Lucian. And originally, uh, Lauder kind of messed up by pretending that Lucian, oh, he didn't care about facts and we got proof. And he quoted Michael Grant, a scholar Michael Grant. Um, well, he re quickly realized he messed up. And let's, let's read what he says, admitting to his mess up on this front. Quote, unquote, in a previous version of this essay, quoting Michael Grant, I questioned whether Lucian was concerned with historical accuracy. I misrepresented and misinterpreted Grant because elsewhere Grant makes it perfectly clear that Lucian was concerned with historical accuracy. According to Grant, Lucian felt it important to separate instruction from entertainment. Grant notes that Lucian felt a historian should be stateless. In other words, Lucian thought the historian should try to remain impartial when recording events concerning the historian's own nation. Moreover, Lucian denounced absolutely denounced fraudulent biography and said that it, quote-unquote, it was the sole duty of the historian to say exactly how things happened. This is an atheist. This is a mythicist, a radical mythicist supporter on infidels.org admitting he was full of rubbish. You cannot deny that Lucian was the most scrupulous of historians. So it's absolutely proven in my 100% that Lucian would not, or at least proven beyond reasonable doubt. Let's let's add some flexibility here, but it's proven beyond reasonable doubt. Lucian would not have recorded purposefully misrepresented unreliable information about the historical Jesus. Um, that much is certain. So, okay, so great. So that means it all falls on, yeah, but Lucian wasn't an eyewitness of the events of the historical Jesus. He was using sources. And we kind of got a sense of what those sources were. It's the common knowledge in the air, as John Mayer said, possibly, and para, talking to Peregrinus, the con artist in Skinflint, and possibly speaking with actual Christians in his area and getting a sense of what they believed. De definitely he got his details right as to what Christians believed, as we saw when we quoted him. So he, he obviously was getting some reliable information as to what the Christians believed at that time. Okay, so, so how reliable are these sources? Well, in the first place, I think that we have a good argument because of Lucian's scrupulousness for historical accuracy and not reporting any false details uh, or including any unproven assertions and stuff like that in his, in a histor in his historical claims. Um, even if we were using the culture knowledge, common knowledge from the cultural milieu or, you know, the common knowledge in the air or, of what pagans thought about Christians at that time, a late, late time. We, knowing how scrupulous Lucian is, I still think that this could be valid um, because the Christians would have preserved their info in the early church. They had their tr very scrupulous pr preservation of information. Now they screwed up. We've seen what the early church fathers have, have to say, not in this series, but they screw up. They get things that are unbiblical and stuff like that, but the core is always fundamentally preserved the core in this case representing a minimal historical jesus that never wavers always that is 100 percent reliably 
transferred by Christians up to the time of Lucian, and Lucian would have gotten that from them. That would have been preserved for sure. And then you say, okay, but who cares? Maybe these were just a bunch of Orthodox Christians that Lucian had access to, assuming that he even asked Christians or was getting the general common knowledge. You know, a Christian talks to a pagan, and then that pagan tells other pagans like Lucian what they said and stuff like that, and or getting his information from that con artist Peregrinus uh, before he died. Nonetheless, I think that this would have to prove on a balance of probabilities that this is reliable information linking back independently and authentically to the real historical Jesus existence. And the reason I say this is because, number one, if who Lucian is, he's scrupulous for the truth, wouldn't even report anything that is in doubt as a historical fact until it was absolutely proven it was fact for him. And secondly, he's well-traveled as an orator. He's going around the Mediterranean world. He would have encountered many pagans who've interacted with Christians, heard about the different flavors, not once. You know, he, if there was myth, if mythicism was true, according to Richard Carrier or something like that, and the historicist movement didn't come around and started up in the second century, obviously Carrier lies about, kind of fudges the data about, oh, the Christians, mythicist Christians from the first century died out, all, almost died out. That's rubbish. Uh, Pliny contradicts that. Nonetheless, even if there were small numbers, there still would have been a remnant that was preserved until the time of Lucian. And given Lucian is so well traveled, he would have encountered at least some mythicist Christians who would have contradicted, said there was no man in Palestine who was crucified as Jesus. No, he was crucified up in the stars, and he's a god, and he was a myth. He wasn't a real historical person living in Palestine, crucified under Pontius Pilate and all that stuff. So Lucian, it very pro Lucian probably would have encountered, even if they were small numbers, mythicist Christians that would have contradicted the facts of the historical Jesus faction um, that was taking precedence in the second century, according to Richard Carrier and their theories of mythicism and stuff like that. So the fact that Lucian just unabashedly says he was a man living in Palestine, crucified for things without any doubt, without any mention that there's contradictory claims at all, despite him having a sufficient natural opportunity to encounter contradictory claims about about Jesus, and for him, he just knows there's this historical Jesus, I think that that says something. I think that that kind of can be used to prove that, well, that's because there only was the historical Jesus claim. Everyone knew Jesus was a historical figure. Nobody doubted that. Um, none of his educated friends ever said that that was rubbish. Um, and it, especially if the hyper-skeptic, Jeffrey J. Lauder, is correct, that he had access to Tacitus, if he had access to official re historians documents then you know he probably would have done it an investigation or something he might have done an investigation for all we know that makes it more plausible at least that he would have had access to the higher records um but again we, we can't prove that maybe he just read tacitus for some reason as a rhetorical work um and didn't go on but nonetheless outside of tacitus yeah i, I do think that given what we know about Lucian, he would not have recorded the facts that Jesus was a man living in Palestine, an ordinary man, worshipped as a god, and uh, crucified for his false teachings and all of that, and all the other details we get about him. Um, if there was any doubt in his mind about contradictory claims, was Jesus a man that lived on earth at all in Palestine or not? 
maybe he was in the celestial heavens, as Richard Carrier claims all first century Christians believed originally. Um, so yeah, I, I just don't think that he would have encountered the remnant and therefore not have reported these as facts. And J.P. Holding kind of doubles down on this and says, look, considering that Lucian noted Christians for their simplicity and gullibility, you know, he's cutting them up for being so stupid as to, to be uh, brainwashed by this peregrinus con artist. Do you honestly think that adds a motive for Lucian to be extra scrupulous with his claims about Jesus? He's he's not he doesn't want to be seen as simple and gullible and stupid himself by just mindlessly believing whatever the Christians tell him to believe, especially if he came across doubts that, you know, mythicist the remnants of mythicist Christians from the first century saying, No, no, Jesus wasn't a historical guy. He lived in the heavens. Don't believe their BS. These these proto-Orthodox Christians are heretics and stuff like that. Do you think he would want to present himself so gullible as to just mindlessly believe the historicist Christians side? No, I, I don't think so. Um, he would have had motive to at least call it out and, and call our attention to the fact that there's contradictory views here. I mean, that's what he tells us historians have to do, is present the contradictory sides and tell them that we can't know or that this side is right or not so so yeah um given that lucian had the motive to be informed uh before he or or at least resolved of any doubt before he reported any historical facts and to avoid the charge of simplicity and gullibility on himself when he is using satire to critique the christians for being simple and gullible the fact that he valued historical accuracy so absolutely he was so well-educated, so well-traveled. I think that it's more probable than not that Lucian is getting is getting histor historically valid source proving the minimal historical Jesus, and he's reporting on it, even though he's reporting on just the common knowledge in the cultural milieu of Christians at that time or what's reported to him through secondhand sources like Peregrinus or that sort of thing about Christians and their founder, Jesus. Um, now, again, obviously there, there are those problems. I don't want to minimize the problems, elements, that it is so late that there is an opportunity for um, corruption in the transmission of the, the Jesus record. And it's a historically proven fact that they did mess up, but not on the core doctrines. Richard Bauckham really destroys this. If, you know, there's no doubt that they would have gotten Jesus' existence correct um, as an essential claim and that sort of thing and would have preserved that. So, so yeah, I assign 55%. It's our first success. I think, again, it's very tentative because there are those issues. It's common knowledge that he's using as a source, which isn't always the most reliable. It's There's some elements of speculation on my part, and it's so late and that sort of thing. But nonetheless, I think it's more probable than not that Lucian is reflecting authentic historical information, that there was, at the very least, there was this minimal historical Jesus that existed on this basis. So, fi yeah, 55%. The minimal Jesus hypothesis has been proven true. Oh, uh, and actually, there is one thing that the skeptic or mythicist might want to say about regarding the evidence from Lucian, and we need to address it. So, this is the fact that... Th so, so, Lucian is so scrupulous in his uh, historical truths that he reports, and he gets the details so accurate. Uh, crucified in Palestine, were brothers at conversion... 
you know, all those details about Christian beliefs that he gets right are truly incredible and a testament to the fact that he is very reliable in taking the details that he gets and reporting them accurately. He, he got it perfect, um, exactly what Christians believe. Oh, not so fast, Mr. Christian, says the mythicist. Don't forget, there's one charge of unreliability where Lucian messes up, showing he's not so reliable after all. Because they try to say, well, look, Dr. Van Verst, for example, will say, well, Lucian is in error in saying that Christians have priests. And also the fact that there are, uses the words scribes, you know, because Peregrinus went to Palestine, he got educated by the priests and scribes of the Christians and their doctrines. Christians didn't like the word priests and scribes. Those are Jewish words, right? So, so that's an error, an alleged error on Lucian's part that a mythicist can try to throw in there and try to, you know, deny the obvious truth that Lucian is the most historically reliable person in history, um, at least at that time. And, okay, so what do we say by way of response? In, in terms of priests, it's not an error here. He, he's just using that term um, because that's a fill-in for the word presbyter that was in the New Testament, and that's the much more common word, right? Saying the word priest for his pagan audience would have been more understandable. He's just substituting priest for presbyter. That's it. There's nothing controversial about that. That's not an error. He knows what he's doing. So this is rubbish. But what about the word... Now, Van Verst also questions Lucen's use of the term scribes because it's a negative association in the Gospels. So... Basically, he, Van Verst is saying, well, Lucian's describing this title anachronistically, and he's borrowing it from Judaism. And Judaism had scribes, and they were all the evil satanic bad guys in the Gospels and that sort of thing. So he, he kind of says that that's a, a sign that the source that Lucian is using and or Lucian himself is corrupted and in error and unreliable. But this, again, this assumes that the, the title, the word scribe is being used as a title rather than as the name of some kind of profession or something like that and there's no reason to assume that no uh, as a pagan he's probably just using the word scribe as the name of a profession that's it so so yeah uh, neither the use of the word priests or the word scribe by lucian proves that he was inaccurate or was unreliable in reporting the historical information the historical information about the Christian beliefs at all. This is just an utter desperate attempt on the part of mythicists and is therefore a failure. Yeah, so with that said, uh, great. Thanks, Lucian. That, that's awesome. Um, we got one. So there's our first uh, successful evidence and didn't come. I was expecting it to come from Pliny the Younger uh, as a government official, something official um, and that sort of thing, or I was hoping the Acts of Pilate the Acts of Pilate might have worked, even though um, most historians are against it, um, but that was on the basis of me confusing Tertullian with Julius Africanus and his reliability. But guess what? When it comes to Lucian, a miscellaneous pagan source, a satirist, a rhetorician of all things, not an official, not a historian, but a, a, a satirist and a playwriter. But yeah, he's, I think it's more probable than not, 55% proven based on this evidence that the minimal historical Jesus exists. Again, it, it's not the strongest. There's definitely massive doubts, and it's a tentative conclusion on my part. But I think that there is good enough sufficient reason to say that it's more probable than not. So, great. Um, awesome. Well, that's got my hopes lifted up a little bit. Uh, let's see how the next miscellaneous 
uh, pagan source does. And this is going to be Mara Bar Serapian. Uh, what's he about? Mara Bar Serapian was a pagan Syrian Stoic philosopher or Stoic um, who wrote a letter while he was in a Roman prison um, to his son, you know, trying to tell, don't be foolish, like, don't be foolish and that sort of thing. Um, so basically, who was Mara? We don't have a clue. We have no information about who this guy is um, beyond what is supplied in this one letter that we have uh, from him, uh, where it's addressing his son. Um, so Mara, or as Asimani writes it in Latin, uh, Maras, um, it's not an uncommon appellation amongst the Syrians. So we know he was a Syrian and that he's very stoic. He, he displays a stoic attitude towards the situation. He thinks that he's going to be killed any day, executed any day in prison. And it looks like he, he'd been through a catastrophe. His city had been destroyed, ruined of Samosota, Lucian of Samosota. Remember that guy? Same place. And he was captured and obviously was detained as a prisoner in bonds by the Romans during the destruction of this city of his. Um, and he thinks, oh, the victors treated him in a tyrannical manner. You know, he's distrustful of the fidelity of the Roman government and describes the misery of his friends, companions, uh, all belonging to the city of Samosata. But yeah, so, so that's, that's who he is. That's basically all we know about this guy. We don't know anything else about him. Uh, so that's a problem. We don't know anything about this author. Okay, uh, great. Well, what did he say then? Um, okay, so basically there's one quote in this letter, single letter that we have from him. And he says, at one point he says, quote unquote, What advantage did the Athenians gain from putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as a judgment for their crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? In a moment, their land was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king, alias Jesus? He doesn't mention the name Jesus, but that's everybody admits that's who he's talking about. Well, it was just after, just after that that the kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger. The Sanians were overwhelmed by the sea. The Jews ruined and driven from their land live in complete dispersion today in the diaspora but socrates did not die for good now he lived on in the teaching of plato pythagoras he did not die for good for he lived on in the statue of hera nor did the wise king of the jews die for good he lived on in the teaching which he had given bada boom bada bing that's the quote and what do we get from this? So it's, it's an obvious fact that this is referring to Jesus Christ, the founder of the Christian religion, um, as the king of the Jews here, a possible reference to the um, sign that Pontius Pilate put above his cross. Yeah, here's what Gary Habermas says we can glean from this. So he says, number one, we know that Jesus was considered to be a wise and virtuous man by this pagan. He is addressed twice as the Jewish Jews king, which is possibly a reference to Jesus' own teachings about himself um, to that of his followers, or even to the wording on the titulus placed over Jesus' head on the cross. Three, Jesus was executed unjustly by the Jews who paid for their misdeeds by suffering judgment soon afterward um, in the destruction and fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. 
And finally, four, Jesus lived on in the teachings of the early Christians uh, through his teachings that, as uh, preserved by the early Christians. Gospels confirmed. Um, so, so yeah, this, this is spot on. Now, we have to mention a couple issues right here in terms of what he said. So, in the first place, um, the hyper-skeptic Jeffrey J. Lauder, originally, um, who sided with mythicists and that sort of thing, he thought, well, this isn't any reference to Jesus. I don't see Jesus' name. So, of course, as as is typical among skeptics on the internet, they just kind of mindlessly assert, well, that's not Jesus then. If I don't see the name, it's not him. It's talking about some guy. He's talking about Socrates and Pythagoras. He must be talking about a Jewish king taught at, at that time. And he went into quite a lot of length, citing an essay by Farrell Till, um, where he denied that the wise king was, in fact, a reference to Jesus. And instead, it's some Jewish king centuries earlier during the time of Socrates and Pythagoras and that sort of thing. Jeffrey J. Lauder has since woken up and uh, opened his eyes and said, I was completely wrong. Man, that was a hypothesis of rubbish, along with all historians. He now agrees with all historians and Christians. Correctly, absolutely proven fact, this is Jesus. You're a fool if you deny it. And that's proven by the fact that the temple was destroyed just after they crucified who? Jesus, 40 years earlier. Um, so nobody denies that this is definitely a reference to Jesus. Uh, not even the radical mythicists themselves would even dare deny that this uh, Jewish wise king who was who was killed is in fact Jesus, and that Jerusalem was destroyed as a punishment by by God through the Romans. Um, now, one thing here is that they'll say, "Well, this is a this is a problem because he says the Jews killed Jesus; it was actually the Romans, and that sort of thing." So there's an error here. Uh, well, this speaks to reliability, but, but yeah, so. Obviously, no, it's just talking the way John does. It's not necessarily an error. John says, blames the Jews, and they were responsible even more so than the Romans. They should have known better because they had the Bible, and they instigated Jesus' death. So he's just talking like Jews of the period, and including the Gospel of John and other Jews in the rabbinic literature and stuff. That, oh, woe to the Jews, and blah, blah, blah. That That's not necessarily proving, oh, I'm a pagan, there's an us versus them mentality. Um, and I should have mentioned this when I, I talked about who uh, Mara is. Some people have tried to say, well, maybe he's a secret. Maybe he was a Christian because he's so positive to Jesus. Um, but most historians say, no, he was a pagan non-believer. Um, and that's evident by the fact that he's, you know, talking about the Jews and that sort of thing. So th there's controversy here. I, I think it's most likely that he is indeed a pagan and he's not a Christian. Um, he would never, if he was a true Christian, he wouldn't just call him a wise king. He would call him God in the flesh, and he would talk about the resurrection, and he, he would nef never equate Jesus to being the same at value as Socrates or Pythagoras, as human figures and that sort of thing. So, so those are some of the issues here. But, but yeah, just understand Jeffrey J. Lauder, the hyper-skeptic from infidels.org, he, he um, even admitted that uh, wow, if, if you're, I used to deny that this passage was about Jesus, I'm not that foolish anymore. I've educated myself with actual PhD world's experts, and they all agree this is Jesus. So he's done a, a complete 180. Here he is in his own words, quote unquote, in a previous version of this essay, citing an, and this essay is, is I'll be providing the link in my blog so you can read him with your own eyeballs. 
to check, but he says, in a previous version of this essay, citing an essay by Farrell Till, I denied that the wise king was a reference to Jesus, emphasizing that the other characters Bar Serapian mentions by name lived long before Jesus. Uh, however, it now seems to me that this is nothing more than a bare possibility. Just because Barra Serapian discusses Pythagoras and Socrates in the same passage as he mentions the Jewish wise king does not make it likely that this wise king lived during roughly the same period. Moreover, given that Jesus was crucified by the Romans, not the Jews, Maribara Serapian's choice of words is inexplicable unless we assume that he received his information about the wise king from Christians, remembering that Christians held the Jews to be at least par partially responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. So in that case, it's highly likely Jeffrey J. Ladder now says it's quote-unquote highly likely that this wise king is and was Jesus. So yeah, that's that's what he says in terms of the content there. So, okay, great. So when was this written? Well, here there's a major disagreement. We have, we just have no idea, to be honest. It We know that at the earliest, it must have been dated after 70 AD. Why? Because he talks about the destruction of the Jerusalem and the temple. So it's got to post-date that. Secondly, it, it's got to be later. It's it, it minimally it's 73 AD, and the reason we get this date as uh, as the minimal date is because the author himself speaks in this letter about his city being destroyed of ancient Samosota, and the Romans treating them in tyrannical manner as victors and stuff like that. And Comagena and its capital Samosota were taken by the Romans in the reign of the. Vespasian, the Emperor Vespasian in 72 AD, or two years after the capture of Jerusalem by Titus. Um, so minimally 73 AD, that would give him a, a year he was captured in 72 AD, went to prison and then wrote it. So that's where 73 AD comes from, um, at the minimum. Uh, but there's lots of other historical circumstances. Uh, so, you know, this is usually 73 AD all the way up to 200 AD. Uh, is kind of where the bulk of historians anywhere in that time frame because there are other historical situations. So, for example, the Emperor Domitian, 23 years later in 95 AD. You know, there would there's nothing incongruous with the internal evidence here. Maybe they're talking about an allusion to the catastrophe of Samos uh, and the militate against this by the Emperor Domitian, that um, evil emperor that was... Uh, the Antichrist, kind of seen as the Antichrist or something in the biblical book of Revelation. Um, he was the emperor when that was written. Likewise, there, there's other things. During the Parthian War, the emperor Vologeses, the king Vologeses, sorry, of the Parthian Empire, um, under the command of Roman general Lucius Verus. Remember remember that little kid in Glad the movie Gladiator? Um, not true to history. He was actually a grown adult and Lucius Verus. In 162 to 165 AD, there was problems going on uh, at that time. And uh, Peter Kirby, uh, a world scholar of the early Christian writings, which I link to in my blog source, go to my blog and click on that for all that free information. He says, this is another opportunity. And furthermore, he says, quote unquote, I have not found the name of Samosata especially mentioned as having suffered more than other cities in this war, but it is stated that Seleucia was sacked and burned by the ancient Romans and five or six thousand slain, which would have been a catastrophe back in those days. So that's another contender. Um, J.P. Holding, that famous very conservative Christian, he himself says, well, look, we have no idea what qualifications 
We are not even sure when this letter was written, other than that it was after 73 AD and very likely after 135 AD, uh, which fits the better description of the Jews' dispersal uh, after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, the first, the second Jewish rebellion by the Messiah, Bar, fake Messiah Bar Kokhba, and that's when uh, Palestine was set up and stolen from the Jews and given to the pagans and. Temples were set, uh, pagan temples of, to Aphrodite were set up on the temp, Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And yeah, 135 AD was a terrible time for Jews. That's when everything, world history changed against them and, and stuff. Once and for all, it was final. Um, but also, uh, J.P. Holding says, well, it couldn't have been before 165, after 165 AD either. Um, in terms of the description, because it's it's suitable to this Parthian War. So yeah, he, he would date it. It's got to be sometime in between 135 and 165 AD. And this is the conservative Christian J.P. Holding who's saying this. Um, now, some, some, peop some scholars have tried to argue for the first century date to favor that through the Matthew connection. And I'll provide a link to this article on the blog. And they'll say, well, there's certain six features that are inc incorporated here in these exactly match Matthew, so it must have been written during the same time in Matthew, in the same Sitzim Lieben, or life situation in uh, the German Sitzim Lieben, that's what that means. Now, uh, if that's not enough, in terms of this wide possibility of date ranges, 73 to 200 AD, that wasn't bad enough, it gets even worse, because now some scholars are trying to argue, some Syrian scholars, for example, are arguing, well, no, actually, I think this is dated even further back in the three two hundreds or even three hundreds AD, the fourth century AD, they're pushing it back now. Um, and this this was um, kind of a trend in the Syriac scholarship with Dr. Uh, Peter W. Vanderhorst making a contribution and presenting kind of a comparison between Mara's letter and Boethius's Consolatio. Um, and both read as consolation works written from prison um, and they advocated dating of Mara's letter to the 3rd or even 4th centuries AD now. Again, that's kind of a, a radical new view on the scene and came in, it was discussed at the conference in 2009, December. But it's growing. It's a growing view now, even if it's a minority within Syriac scholarship. Um, so, so that even wi widens it out even more um, if you think that there's a connection there. So, yeah. Um, Dating, we just don't have a dang clue. It's it's sometime between 73 AD and 200 AD, most likely, uh, but it could even date as late as the fourth century AD. Uh, we just don't we just don't know um, is the best way to put it. So, yeah, I'll include sources. You can check into that. Um, great, grand, and groovy. What about the reliability then? That's all we care about. Um, okay, so what is the textual transmission reliability of this text? Well, obviously, we don't have the original autographs. But what's really bad here is we don't have a heck of a lot of manuscripts. We got one, one extant manuscript of this letter that's housed in the British Museum. I can get uh, Gary Habermas and Lacona give the exact uh, number in their books. Um, yeah, let me let me just tell you what it is. So it's uh, if you're looking for that, it is British Museum Syriac manuscript fourteen thousand six hundred and fifty-eight. If that's in the British Museum, if you want to look it up uh, for your own records, but that's it. That dates to the 7th century AD, so it's much older than our other manuscripts. 
but we just have that one manuscript. That's literally it. That's all we know about this letter from one manuscript. Kind of a problem. We prefer to have more manuscripts to do a comparison analysis. Again, um, it could be reliable, reliably transferred. Most historians think that it's genuine and that sort of thing. However, what about the reliability of Morrow? Well, once again, we can't prove anything. We don't know anything about him. If it's dated to 73 AD, maybe he was an eyewitness to Jesus. If, if what these skeptical Syriac scholars are saying is true, you can detect that he was a Christian or was associated with the Jewish Christianity movement through Matthew, through the connection, literary connection of the Gospel of Matthew, well, then you could say, well, maybe he was an eyewitness. He was actually there and saw Jesus in the flesh, crucified. Um, on the other hand, well, if it dates to the 2nd, 3rd, or 4th centuries AD, and he was a Christian, well, that's biased, and it's not. it wouldn't qualify because it's not a pagan source. Um, now, most historians disagree with this. They say, no, it's obvious he's a pagan, so that that's not a problem. These new newfound ideas by hyper-skeptics in the Syriac scholarship community. I don't think we need to worry about that. He's definitely a pagan on a balance of probabilities, but as to the dating, I, I don't know. I, it, it could be any time I take the traditional, any time between the first century and uh, second centuries AD. And that means, where is he getting his information from? Well, he obviously didn't do any um, independent research or anything like that. I mean, he's sitting in a Roman prison cell. He wouldn't have access to anything. He wouldn't be, have access to higher up historians and people in the know and everything like that. He's just going to, based on hearsay from Christians themselves and or the common knowledge, common milieu. Um, and I think that's all he's got. And in this case, we can't use that like we did with Lucian to prove that it's probably true. Um, again, because we don't know when it dates from. And secondly, uh, the common Malu itself is very unreliable uh, source of information to use to prove the historical Jesus. The only reason it worked with Lucian is because he had, we had independent reasons to think that the common uh, traditions preserved by the Christians would be relevant in his case because he was well-traveled to hear multiple independent attestation to varying things and his scrupulousness in checking out the historical facts and not reporting on historical facts unless it was absolutely concrete and uniform upon what they were saying about the historical Jesus. Given that it's uniform in various diverse areas of the empire, that speaks to the fact that this must be an early testimony that there was a historical Jesus. There was no myth Jesus in the first century. Rubbish carrier, rubbish. Um, it was always a historical Jesus and therefore once it gets back to the first century, we got Richard Bauckham's argument, eyewitnesses and authorities preserve the eyewitness testimony in the essential details at the very least. Jesus' existence could not have been corrupted or lost, even if minor secondary details about how to do the communion or who is a leader, a bishop or not, uh, what are the rules and stuff like that. They mess up those details, minor details and administrative details. They don't get the essence wrong. The gospel message, Jesus existed historically, was crucified in Palestine historically, and resurrected before his apostles. Impossible for them to get those details wrong, in my opinion, given what we know historically of the preservation of the Christian gospel's central message, including the existence of a man, a Jew Jewish man named Jesus, who was the founder of the Christian church, this, what we are calling the minimal historical Jesus. Unlike with Lucian, we don't have those reasons that apply to Mary. 
Mara. We don't know if he was scrupulous in his recounts of data. We have no idea. He wasn't, if he was well-traveled or anything like that, and whether he was able to get independent attestations suggesting early attestation and stuff like that. We just can't prove anything in his case. For all we know, he heard a Christian talking in the market one day and just is reporting what he heard them say. So this is just an utter failure. We can't use it. Um, I agree totally with even Christian scholars. So Dr. Mike Lacona, he assigns it a rating of not relevant uh, and useless. I totally agree with him on that rating that he gives. Um, even the hyper-Christian, conservative Christian, J.P. Morling uh, Holding himself admits, and I'm going to include the link to his article, even he says, quote-unquote, this reference to Jesus is not particularly valuable. We may agree that Serapion's letter is of marginal value, for it tells us little about the historical Jesus. It does suggest an evaluation of Jesus independent of Christian influence, perhaps, in that no Christian would refer to Jesus only as a wise king, nor that he lived on through his teaching rather than through the resurrection. Um, but at the same time, it's it's clear that he's messed up. He doesn't understand who Jesus really is. He just thinks he's a wise teacher like Socrates or Pythagoras on the same level. So yeah, um, I think this is way less than 50%, 0% probably. Um, it's There's just no proof as to the reliability of historical tradition proving that there is a minimal historical Jesus. Even the, the Christian apologists all agree. So we throw Mara in the garbage or put it put a little stamp tentative um, upon further new evidence being discovered about him because right now we just can't get anything out of him. So, all right, so that's Mara. Uh, let's move on to the last one. So we're at two and a half hours. Uh, so this is going to be the last one I'm going to cover in this uh, part. And it's going to be the pagan critic of Christianity, Celsus. Okay, so I'm just going to go over him very quickly. So basically, he's our last pagan source, secular pagan source here. He mentions Jesus within a reasonably short period after his, after his death, so within our 150-year period before 180 AD. He was, Celsus was a pagan Middle Platonic philosopher who wrote an attack on Christianity entitled The True Word. Um, he wrote this in and around sometime between 177 to 180 AD. And the early church father, Origen, wrote a devastating rebuttal, wiping him out and destroying his foolish pagan arguments in and around 248 AD. Uh, now the issue here is Celsus's pamphlet or his book has been uh, totally destroyed. It's gone. We don't have any manuscripts or the original autographs of it. So it's only preserved through the Christian church father Origen, um, who quotes extensively from it. Most of it is ent quoted entirely by Origen and then refuted for the non pagan nonsense that it really is. Um, and he quotes it verbatim. And we can trust Origen. Uh, that is definitely what the pagan Celsus said, um, even if it does sound quite foolish. Um, nonetheless, Celsus was a fool. So that's what he is. That's what he did say. Um, but Celsus mentions the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And the main problem here, the source, Celsus seems to be using the Gospels. He had access to the four Gospels and to the Gospels and was using them as his primary source for information about Jesus, such as his death and resurrection. And because of that, that's totally worthless to our cause because 
In this, we're trying to evaluate independent secular pagan and Jewish sources, not Christian sources. So if his ultimate source is a Christian New Testament literature, we're going to be evaluating that in a future show as to whether the Gospels are reliable information about Jesus or not. So because his primary source is the Gospels, Celsus is disqualified and is a failure. We can't use him at all. 0% proven for Celsus um, on this front. He's not usable. Okay, so that covers it. I think at this point I'm going to stop. We're already over two and a half hours, so that's a lot longer than I was expecting. Um, so I'm going to stop part two here, and next time in part three, I'm going to finish up the non-Christian uh, sources. And what I want to do is look at, in part three, I'm going to look at the secular archaeological discoveries that might prove that there is a minimal historical Jesus, the Nazareth inscription, uh, Shroud of Turin, the, the ossuaries, you know, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, stuff like that. Anything that might archaeologically speak to the existence of a minimal historical Jesus or not, let's evaluate those. And then finally, I'm going to end off by looking at the non-secular religious Jewish or rabbinic writings and try to assess is there anything within these writings that could prove there is a minimal historical Jesus. Uh, and then with that, that should finish off part three um, and all of the non-Christian uh, sources, both secular and Jewish, religious Jewish or rabbinic type sources, um, you know, and uh, we'll see where we get. And then after that, plan is in part four then we're going to switch gears and give some negative evidences against the existence of a minimal relevant Jesus we're going to start finally start to say look all we've done so far is look at certain positive evidences but what about the mythicists they have their own art positive arguments proving that Jesus was a myth and or didn't exist historically I want to look at those in part in the part four video uh, just to give them their fair shave fair say. You know, we have positive and then negative evidences against the existence of a Jesus, minimal historical Jesus. We can put that together in bays and get the cumulative total. Then after we've addressed all the myth negative mythicist arguments, we can get back, starting in part five and beyond, to the positive evidences, the Christian, the most strong and strongest proofs and evidences that prove there really was a minimal historical Jesus that all biblical scholars and historians virtually all of them admit today, uh, prove beyond all reasonable doubt that there was this minimal historical Jesus. So that's the plan of action in terms of this series uh, as a whole. Obviously that will take time to, to finish all of that, um, but I'm going to try to get part three up, uh, finishing off these non-Christian, both secular and Jewish sources and archaeological sources, at the very least by Christmas at the latest, or sometime before, and I'm going to work as hard as I can to get that done before September if I can, but if not, you know, sometime between September and December, I'll definitely post up part three on the archaeological sources, as well as evaluating those Jewish rabbinic sources to see if anything can prove uh, the minimal historical Jesus existed. But at this point, I'm going to stop in part two. So, okay, so let's do our overall conclusion and wrap up part two. Okay, so what, what is it we discovered? So, so far what we've done for the most part is looked at secular, non-Christian, pagan and Jewish historical documents that allege to speak to the truth of the minimal historical Jesus. In part one, A and B, of, the, of my Jesus Mythicism Refuted series, 
we proved, we looked at first the category of ancient historians, and we looked at four, four to five of them. So the first place we looked at Thallus and Flavin, those Greek historians, and they failed. They were less than 50% proven that a minimal historical Jesus existed, ignored from the calculation, because anything that's 50% or below is a failure, failure and doesn't get included in Bayes' theorem unless it translates into a reverse argument. Like, you know, if somebody said, oh, we, you know, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? So if you get, if you have an absence of evidence, you can't get 51% or more proven for Thallus and Flagon. Um, well, that doesn't prove that Jesus didn't exist. Unless you can say, well, we can prove that you would, we would expect Thallus and Flagon's evidence to, to be 51% or more proven or something like that. Obviously, no mythicist can do that, but if they could, then a failure would translate into a positive argument for the opposite thesis that Jesus didn't exist or something like that. But I just want you to understand how the calculation works. So in this case, that it's not translatable into a negative hypothesis. So Thallus and Flagan just thrown in the garbage. If you're 50% or less, you're just ignored. You don't, you don't exist. You don't affect the calculation one way or the other. Next, we looked at the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus from the early 2nd century, around 115 AD. He was a success, and he was about 59 point something percent. So he gets included in the calculation. Then we looked at the Roman historian around the same time, Suetonius, and he was a failure. He didn't work. Uh, he was 50% or less and therefore he was ignored from the calculation. But I gave the caveat that within a cumulative case, Suetonius is helpful at buttressing or as a supporting evidence for Tacitus, for the truth of Tacitus in proving a minimal historical Jesus. Uh, so it's supporting evidence. And then finally we ended off part 1b after giving Suetonius with Josephus. And Josephus was another successful one, really good, set over 70%, 70 percent, 70 point something percent, proven uh, total that the minimal historical Jesus existed based on two passages in Josephus, one addressing Jesus directly, the other his brother James and his death. Uh, so that's what we did in parts 1a and part 1b, and that's what we found. And that gave us a cumulative total in Bayes of 77.63% proven that the minimal historical Jesus existed based on Tacitus and Josephus, the only two successful, uh, successful ancient historians, uh, secular ancient historians, one Roman, the other Jewish. Now in part two, uh, we looked at a couple different categories. So we first looked at four um, historical documents within the category of what I call the ancient Roman government officials. And we first looked at Pliny the Younger, or Pliny Secundus, along with two associated documents, and a letter from the Emperor, Roman Emperor Trajan responding to Pliny's original letter, and then a follow-up letter by the Roman Emperor Hadrian to somebody else entirely, but that seemed to confirm the same attitude and the, some of the things in the Trajan's letter. So what we found, we found that the Trajan and uh, Hadrian, the two letters from the emperor, did nothing. They were failures. They didn't prove a minimal historical Jesus, but they served as supporting documents that buttressed and supported the Pliny the Younger, the truth of the Pliny the Younger letter that we're using as the primary evidence. Our main conclusion with Pliny the Younger is that it ultimately was 50% or less proven that it could prove a minimal historical Jesus. Therefore, Pliny the Younger, along with the two associated documents of 
from Trajan and Hadrian are ignored from the calculation. Now, that said, just as we uh, discussed when it came to the failure of Suetonius, the Roman historian, um, I think Pliny the Younger could be used as a supporting document or supporting evidence, again, supporting the successful Roman historian Tacitus for proving the minimal historical Jesus, because Pliny the Younger knew Cornelius Tacitus. He was around the same time, 111 to 113 AD is when he wrote this. Uh, well, Tacitus and Suetonius wrote in and around 110 to 115 AD, or you know, 112 in and around that time frame. And they both use the same, they talk about Christianity as a vicious superstition, a contagious superstition, and stuff like that. So there are literary connections that kind of can be used to reinforce and be used as supporting evidence for our use of Cornelius Tacitus as a proof on a balance of probabilities that a minimal historical Jesus existed. So Pliny the Younger isn't useless, along with his two attached tra Emperor Trajan and Hadrian documents. Um, these are useful, again, for in the same way as Suetonius, for buttressing and supporting our main evidence of Cornelius Tacitus, the Roman historian who proves that uh, Jesus probably existed as a minimal historical Jesus figure. Um, so, so yeah, don't um, just because he fails in isolation to prove directly that a minimal historical Jesus exists, in my opinion, doesn't mean that he gets thrown in the garbage. No, he he has value. Pliny has value as a supporting document for Tacitus, just as Suetonius has value, even though it can't prove directly Jesus, the minimal historical Jesus itself in isolation. Again, it's a supporting document and it has support, supportive value for the Cornelius Tacitus uh, proof for the minimal historical Jesus. Then we looked at one last uh, document from government official Pontius Pilate, the Acts of Pilate. And uh, while I was hopeful at first, once I uh, realized I made a mistake um, in who I was, uh, who attested to it, um, this was an utter failure. This is the worst out of everything that we've evaluated, and it's just a total failure. Um, so it, it was way less than 50%, 50% or less, therefore it was ignored. So the entire category, there's four documents from the category of Roman pagan uh, government officials just ignored from the calculation altogether. But then we turned our focus to the miscellaneous pagan writings. And under this category, we had three that we evaluated. So the first was the pagan uh, Lucian of Samosata. And he was our first and only success. He succeeded. Um, we got we assigned it 55%. It was very tentative. There, There is definitely a lot of room for doubt. And there are problematic hurdles here that one needs to be skeptical about and cautious uh, of, and most historians are cautious of it on that basis. But at the at the end of the day, I think that there's a sufficient basis to say it's it's slightly more probable than not. In the a tune of 55%, that Lucian of Samosata proves there is a minimal historical Jesus. Next, uh, we looked at Mara Bar Serapian, the pagan. Uh, Syrian, sat the Syrian um, guy who was in uh, Roman prison who wrote a letter to his son. That was another, ultimately, another failure. It was less than fifty percent proven. Um, you know, we don't know who his sources are, whether he's reliable, whether his sources were reliable, when it was dated. Um, so yeah, th this was another failure. And then finally, we looked at 
after Meribar Serapion, we also looked at the miscellaneous pagan Celsus, who was a critic of Christianity in the late 177 to 180 AD, and he wrote mocking Christians, deriding them, and trying to critique their beliefs. And he mentions Jesus' death and resurrection, that sort of thing, and that was an utter failure. We couldn't prove that he proved a minimal historical Jesus because his primary source was the Gospels, so that's ignored. So both Marabar Serapion and Celsus within this miscellaneous pagan category are ignored from the calculation. Only Lucian of Samosoto was successful within part two, and that's, okay, great. So now we add that, that 55%, into the calculation. So we had 77.63% proven from Tacitus and Josephus in parts 1a and parts 1b. And now we add in our new positive evidence from part two from Lucian, of Samosata at 55%, and we get our cumulative total at 80.92% proven that the minimal historical Jesus exists given these three historical documents from Tacitus, Josephus, his two mentions of Jesus and his brother, and now Lucian of Samosata. Um, so this is great. It's very probable that the minimal that the minimal historical Jesus exists, and it's only going to grow from there. Trust me. We'll see if we get anything else from part three. But don't forget, um, coming up is going to be part four. We, we have yet to evaluate any negative evidences against the existence of a minimal historical Jesus. You know, the, the positive pro-mythicist type arguments that might lower our overall prob cumulative total probability about the existence of the minimal historical Jesus. So we need to see what kind of damage is going to be done uh, in future shows. So So don't get your hopes up and say, whoa, we're at 80%. Um, we're we're going to be doing future shows where we're going to be evaluating negative evidences, and that number could diminish. Uh, in fact, it could go below the 50% mark. We'll have to wait and see uh, what, what happens when we evaluate all of the evidence in, in future shows. But as of right now, given the evidences, the three successful evidences from the parts one and part two um, videos and, and shows, we're at 80%, just given these, you know, three people, Tacitus, Josephus, and Lucian in isolation. So we're off to a great start um, in terms of uh, proving the minimal historical Jesus did in fact exist. All right, cool. So I'll, I'll leave it at that and have a, have a great week, everybody.